Looking to get away? To get lost on an adventure you'll never forget? If you're searching for your next vacation destination, take a trip to the fine line where you can wine and dine. Our expert guides will lead you on a hike through beautiful wilderness with gorgeous fistos you'll remember for the rest of your life. At Cope and Darby Luxury Expeditions, we... What? Yeah, but it sounds better when it's in alphabetical order. It, it might, but it's not. That's not what it is. It's Darby and Cope. Okay, sorry. At Darby and Cope Luxury Expeditions, we take great pride in giving our guests the most memorable vacation experience of their lives. On each trip, you'll be treated to beautiful views of the natural lands of Maryland, or Delaware, or Pennsylvania, or even West Virginia. They're all good. When booking your next trip with Darby and Cope Luxury Expeditions, be sure to enter code CHAINS for an 11% discount. Enter code CHAINS for a 10% discount and get ready for a vacation you'll never forget. Darby and Cope Luxury Expeditions. We may not get you where you want to go, but we'll get you somewhere. Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pynchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 56 through 60 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will has a summary for us. Will, if you go ahead. I think I do at least. <laughs> well, Wick's Cherry Coke detours our only lately re-railed primary tale to tell his listeners of a certain pattern of ins and outs recorded in Mason's log, which follow along an undecamerous line of their own, which he suspects to be the real evidence of a psychic, or at least spiritual, link between real time and being faulty enough to conceive of such things. That is, the eleven missing days repeating and shaping the stories of the witnesses to the calendric change. The youths in the room guffaw and belabor their unk, but all he can say is to be wary of such inevitable wounds on their own lives, which will surely inspire equal dismissal from their own youngers someday. In typical cola fashion, the frame shifts back to the surveyors, themselves exchanging a related dialogue. Mason has realized something about the calendar reform himself. The missing days must be positioned looping just outside linear time. The cause for this belief stems from an experience he's tried to rid himself of far more than dwelt upon. The young astronomer, only recently married, went to bed September 2nd, 1752, and awoke the next date. Date. Apparently alone. And there he stayed for another ten subsequent non-existent days seeing neither hide nor hair of anything with the name, before returning like nothing had changed in bed the morning of the 14th. Like a writer's room for the Twilight Zone, Dixon compares his first impulses to the actions taken by his companion, who, despite the tantalizing opportunities for pleasures both hedonistic and platonic, 
quickly tires of the former, and despite his unfettered access to the works held under lock and key in the secret basements of Oxford University Library, inexplicably abandons his pursuit of hidden knowledge, and cannot seem to return. For the remainder of his days in the looping time, Mason hears howls that could be hounds, but more likely are something almost, but not entirely quite human. He assumes they must originate from something like the strange bat-like creatures which screech through the eternal twilight. When the eleven days are up, he's back, next to his bride, and all he can gather of substance from this experience now, after years of trying to wipe it from his memory, is some consolation that he'd been without Rebecca before, although less than a fortnight may not quite compare to half a life. The only material thing he brought back to the timeline was a bite perhaps from one of the bat-dog people. Of course, it disappeared within minutes, and Dixon finally realizes that he's the butt of the joke for once. The following year, apparently in pursuit of a mutual, well-rounded understanding of this place they've already begun bisecting, Mason heads south and Dixon north. Presaging the holidays of billions, Jeremiah attends a musical stage production, tastefully adapted from the Black Hole of Calcutta in New York City. As usual, idly wandering towards mindless pleasure. He is caught by the cast members and dragged along oh so willingly to an after-party, where he runs into our old pals, the whole set, the Sons of Liberty. This time, tensions run high, and Captain Volcano believes that Mason mightn't have absconded alive had the permutation of their travels been reversed. Of course, the Brooklyn Dodger himself, Blackie, appears to force our Quaker friend into an even less convincing French accent than Mason's. Thankfully, even Blackie knows that Quakers hold no tide with royalty, so by the end of the night, they're swapping rebel tales and contesting at beer chugging. Somewhere between those points, though, Dixon is surprised to find the macaroni magnificent Mr. Dimdown, dressed more subtly and apparently entangled in this mess of revolution, but still harboring some deep appreciation for the finer things, like wigs sold on street corners. Charles, on the other hand, is shaken to find the rebel spirit alive and well in the South. Along the way, he and all the rest upon the highways are treated to serenades of union, of surpassing origin and becoming American. He finds himself at the College of William and Mary, advising the chiefs of the remaining Tuscarora of the apparent cowardice of the Paxton boys when confronted with a unit more prepared than children and their mothers, and assures them of safety in crossing Pennsylvania. He is invited to play pool with Colonel Washington, and gladly takes the offer. They're soon packed in equally by the smoke of pipes and cigars, by the chatter and raucous of good spirit, and by the bodies consuming and producing these libations, and even the black unmembers of this Virginia society find themselves accepted in the billiard room, if only through obscurity. Gershom, for example, begins rattling off routine after routine of king and fool jokes, and his voice being well known among this crowd. Soon everybody... Sorry and his voice being well known among this crowd, soon everybody is impersonating the ebullient African. The voice that shocks Mason the most, however, is Nate McLean. Back at school, and glad to be so. Even he, a man of limited living, was able to feel some of the force that was being channeled through the Visto. Mason tries to be affronted by the implication of his poor choice in work, but can only sincerely wonder. When they return to the front of the line, quality and authority of the trustee of their equipment, Captain Shelby, has been called into, a, into question. The story goes that a young couple in his domain, Tom Hines and Catherine Wheat, were fooling around one day and got themselves a kid. Now Catherine claims him as the father, but fails to appear at the hearing. 
Tom wants nothing to do with fatherhood and pleads ignorance until his father locks him in a shed to think on responsibility he's already committed himself to. Well, he comes out being... He comes out wanting to be a dad. So much so, in fact, that he rounds up a posse and with a writ of repossession of stolen goods written and signed by the captain himself. Only really wanted to... Jeez, uh, sorry, that was way off. With a writ of repossession of stolen goods written and signed by the captain himself, who only really wanted to see what would happen next. The crew then descended on the Wheat household to kidnap the baby. Along the way, they have brutalized every member of the home, the mother included. Well, they escape with the babe. But later, for reasons that are pretty obvious, must appear in court. Before anything happens, though, Catherine and Tom have somehow made up already, cooing over the child, and Tom surrenders and agrees to be wet. For some reason, she still wants that. It's a happy wedding, and the Wheats pledge a remarkable sum to the purpose of the marriage, considering the courtship. Tom thanks Shelby for his assistance over a scene of camaraderie and piss. The maybe soon not to be captain. The other captain, Zhang, and the dynamic duo get to know each other a bit better, trading paranoid fantasies and eventually stories. Dixon, in particular, inspired by Captain Zhang's Dragon of the Earth, tells the tale of the Lambton Worm. In very short, sometime, long ago, during a crusade, the heir to Lambton Castle was a little ship. He spent all day fishing and lazing around, and one day, he pulled a weird, ugly eel out of the stream. As always, doing things halfway, he threw it into a well for funsies. And then, you know, young man crusades, he heads out for Jerusalem. Kind of. From the well, the worm poisons the land and feeds on livestock and pets and soon people as it grows large enough to encircle the castle. The heir is advised of this by a fortune teller in Transylvania, and while the road has straightened him out a bit, he still asks if it's possible for her to enchant him and guarantee his success over the beast. But, of course, she can't do any such thing. Instead, she basically makes him a magic contract. If he wants to take the dragon down safely, he must pledge to kill the first animal he sees after the beast is slain. So back he travels, gets some special bladed armor made by the blacksmith to counter the poisonous blood and flesh of the worm, which is now a monster of mythic proportion. He arranges for his father to release his childhood hound upon his victory. All goes well, miraculously, even as the venom drips through the plates, and the worm lacerates itself into mush as it attempts to crush the knight. And then his father rushes out to congratulate him. Abandoning the contract, sure that some technicality won't affect things. The hounds are released, they're killed, and subsequently, each subsequent Lambton heir for nine generations died a horrible death away from his family and home. Of course, Captain Shelby then tells everybody about the nearby Snake Hills and how they're invisible by any method that anybody seems willing to discuss. All right, well, uh, so let's let's start where we always start with the, everyone's just kind of general view of these five chapters. I, I think the chapters are interesting. I think this is another case where Thomas Pinchon understands what he's doing to his reader, where after the last five, he's giving his reader a bit of a break, but mm -hmm. not, not doing so in such a way that it, it 
it has zero meaning to the text. I think there's more interesting observations in these um, chapters about the realities of drawing the lines and of creating boundaries and property barriers and what that that does to the world. Especially, there's some allusions to it in the in the um, ways in which Shelby completely ignores the power of the line uh, as it's written in the text, and curiously, Pinchon capitalizes that phrase, which indicates that it has some kind of you know potential power beyond just just being a a a thing that he is he is denoting as in a a you know language sense. Um, there's also some interesting observations in the ignorance of the American public and politicians at the time to the fact that they are actively enslaving other people while complaining about being slaves to another nation. So mm-hmm. he's still he's still doing interesting things that are building on been working through for most of the book, but he isn't doing so in, in such a way that, that makes you, you know, spin around in circles wondering what all you're supposed to be getting from it or what is even going on like he he did for the past five chapters with a with a good chunk of his multiple narrative structure and and how they're they're intersecting with one another so it's a nice it's a nice kind of not break but uh regrouping period i would say after the last five yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah i like that that's a bit of a um a uh like the all the narrative tension and kind of um you know difficulty of of the last section kind of dissipates here um there's a lot to like about these chapters i mean we finally get a prolonged discussion of the lost 11 days um which i found very interesting uh especially the discussion of you know mason um going through the like forbidden section of the Oxford library, um, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed um, ever since. I mean, I, I in some ways hate to bring up Harry Potter just in general, but you know, <laughs> Harry, Harry Potter did introduce me to the, to the concept of a forbidden section to a library. And um, I really enjoyed that part. Um, we find that we get it. I, I, I want to say that the section, the the part where um, where Pynchon, where the where Cherry Coke, I guess, tells this story. Uh, I, although it seems like he might be quoting Dixon, uh, a story that Dixon told about the the guy fighting the worm, um, or the dragon, or whatever. That mm-hmm. does seem to be. I can't think of another time except for later in this book. I can't think of any other times whenever. Uh, Pynchon gets into the fantasy genre, um, which is really interesting. Some of it in in Against the Day. There's the the Chums of Chance have that kind of um, I don't want to call it dime store adventure, but it's it has that kind of um, adventuring fantasy uh, storytelling that um, that was popular in kind of the earlier parts of the 1900s, late 1800s. Um, but that would really be the only other book I can think that really has any kind of uh, direct ties to fantasy of his stuff, at least. Yeah, I think he, I, that's a good point, actually. Um, yeah, I, I, I just really enjoyed these, these sections. It does, we do at the end get the, uh, the description of the 
snake-like mounds, which I believe I was talking about for our episode last week, um, mm-hmm. which, again, is kind of like a historical mystery that uh, you don't see too much discussion of. Um, just kind of in general, you don't see too much discussion of it. Um, I, I really enjoy kind of thinking about it just because we still don't really know uh, where those mounds come from and what their purpose is or what civilization created them or what society created them. Um, I really enjoyed um, the section where they go to the billiards hall. Um, mm-hmm. Billiards is has been a, a thing with some of my friends we would go and do a fair amount in my life. Uh, it's nice that we get, we get Gershom again and uh, George Washington again. And uh, yeah, these, there's a lot of fun stuff in these chapters. There was, there was a few different things that kind of made me smile, which I'm kind of blanking on right now, but maybe we'll get to it. Um, and maybe I, I don't, I don't typically find Pynchon very much like, at least for me, he's not like laugh out loud, funny um, books. Don't typically make me laugh out loud besides maybe catch 22. But um <laughs> Yeah, that's probably the, that's one of the only that in a Confederacy of Dunces are probably the only two books that I've ever actually laughed like out loud at. But there are there is a lot of comedy in this section in this section. Um, it's just kind of a yeah, kind of fun, a little bit more uh, kind of uh, low stakes, I guess, to section, which I really enjoy this section a lot. Yeah, I, I really I, I enjoyed a lot of what's in here on on just a on, on just a reading for pleasure level like the uh the the missing 11 days is probably my favorite part of this set of chapters i just I absolutely love how it's presented and and how um we get to see mason kind of interacting with this bizarre place that he's in um for that for that time and its importance on everything you know it's come up before and 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 how and i was actually explaining that concept to my kids not too long ago um when we were walking my son to school for his his first day of middle school and we were kind of i don't remember even how it came up but i i mentioned oh we were talking about daylight savings and they were they were talking about how it's weird that people get so worked over worked up over um the change in time and how we don't really need it anymore. I was like, well, what's even weirder than that is, you know, and I kind of went on to explain that missing 11 days that, that happened and how bizarre it would be to wake up. And, you know, it's, it's 11 days later than it was the day before. Um, and how much getting used to that would take. But I I did, I really liked that section. I really liked, um, as you mentioned, uh, Luke, the, the party scene with the super smoky billiard room. Um, another one, coffee houses too. Another, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the two stories within the story that we get at the end in, in chapters fifty nine and sixty. Um, I really liked those, and I'm, I'm glad also, Luke, that you brought up the the the, the mounds and and those. Um, because I think that's kind of a a really important part of of not just this book, but a lot of Pinchon's work. And and I know we've touched on it before. Um, you know that that kind of loss of um, the sense of magic that we used to have, not, not in the, you know, illusory sort of, um, magician kind of thing, but just the general magic of, of nature and of the things that people are capable of. And reading that part at the end of, of chapter 60, when they're talking about those mounds and the intricacy with which they were made, despite the fact that you can't see that detail, if you're standing on the ground, that you have to be at a point where it wasn't possible to be at 
when they made them. Um, and I think that, you know, if you try to have a conversation with someone nowadays about something like that, you're going to be hard pressed to find someone who's really genuinely interested in it because there's so much now that we take for granted that kind of surpasses that level of awe. But I, th I think if you really examine what was done, you know, like you said, and, and look at what they've what they did with what they had at the time. Like it's, it's absolutely astonishing. I almost find stuff like that to be more fascinating to read about and, and to learn about than, um, you know, the process of making computers and, and AI and all the stuff that's happening now. Like I, I find more magic and intrigue in, in the accomplishments that were done hundreds of years ago, um, with simple tools and, and, and just ingenuity. Yeah, and intention does a really good job, especially in these chapters. Not necessarily in the, not necessarily regarding the lines, but in general throughout the book. But particularly in the the earlier parts of these this section, he does capture that kind of sense of magic in the world. And in fact, these are these are some of my favorite chapters in the book, uh, particularly fifty nine and sixty. As much as I love the party scenes, both of them, they're both, like, you might not have been laughing out loud, Luke. I was, I, I, I was on a plane, I think I was freaking some people out. <laughs> I love them, I think they're hilarious. But 59 is just, I mean, I seriously had to put the, put my e-reader down and just stare into distance to keep from breaking out into maniacal hyena laugh. <laughs> <laughs> because what the hell is going on in Tom's head? Yeah. What's going on in Catherine's head? Yeah. What are all of these people doing? Yep. It's it's hilarious and utterly utterly surreally weird, especially knowing that it's, you know, not to not to foreshadow anything, uh it's it's kind of based in reality. Yeah. This particular yep. instance. And beyond that, you know, it's just it's just the kind of thing that people do and it's hilarious there is there is one particular line from that chapter which i will read when we get to funny moments that had me laughing so hard for a good eight minutes and i had to go back <laughs> and restart the paragraph because of all of the different places that my brain had taken me mentally and then just the same thing happened to me again when I when I when I read that sentence, um, <laughs> especially just imagining the character's perspective of the events that were unfolding as it was, because it is it is to Will's point, one of the most absurd circumstances that a posse of people got together for ostensibly no reason that they would have had to benefit from being engaged in this posse <laughs> to go it like literally perform an incursion on someone's house in newly a different state um and and take a baby and throw it around a room trying to pass it to somebody on the advice of a freshly sober person who spent the last like 19 hours in solitary confinement <laughs> in a barn at the wishes of his overly oppressive father like just that statement is and and just general idea is so crazy and it literally comes from reality it's so yeah. crazy it could only be something that actually happened 
Yeah, I'm glad that I was I was really happy that we got Brett's email and that he explained that it comes from reality because there are some, you know, I there are some kind of details in there and I do think that uh Pension handles the subject material with maybe not with delicacy, but he, he doesn't seem to be condoning the violence at least. Um but there is, you know, an element of comedy in there that um mm-hmm. I would have been maybe a little bit uncomfortable with if it wasn't, you know, if you couldn't extrapolate a bunch of stuff about the American legal system at that time and the ridiculousness of the line in terms of, uh, you know, it being like kind of an, an artificial barrier that doesn't really exist. And there's a bunch of different stuff you can pull out of that story uh, whenever you think about it a little bit deeper. Uh, but at first glance, you know, it can kind of it can read like some as- some parts of Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, where if you don't kind of dig in and think about it deeply, um, it can kind of read as a scan as problematic, perhaps. And like I said, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think it actually is, especially considering it's a true story. Um, but I, I did kind of sigh a sigh of relief once Brett sent that email, which we'll get to, I think, by the end of the episode about mm-hmm. how it's a real uh, a real life event. Um, so if that whole thing had just come from Pynchon's mind, I would be a little bit uncomfortable um you know with him just kind of randomly throwing that in there uh but the fact that you know it's historically based like you know like as we've been over on this podcast like pretty much all of you not not maybe all of but a lot of the um more like less fantastical stories in this book are um a lot of are based in reality so yeah, it's it's. I don't even know if it's necessarily that it, if it had come from his head, but it's. I guess the the thing that would have disturbed me about it if it weren't, you know, real, is that it is a kind of a joke. Like you're sitting here reading this absurd violence. You're reading these people come in and like it. It's what like eight men, eight young men coming mm-hmm. in, beating and whipping, like six women and one other man who is significantly older than them it is it's like one of those things that uh you you hear about and you never want to think about it again it's the kind of thing that you it makes you want to put them in a hole and lock (laughs) throw away the key sorry (laughs) lock away the key um but you know to to have it be a real story that you know, ends in such a serendipitous kind of way. It is. It truly is Looney Tunes esque. Yeah. And the Looney Tunes aspects of it are the real parts. So all he's doing is providing, like, hey, uh, this is crazy. Rather than you know saying essentially, wouldn't it be hilarious if a bunch of guys came in and just savagely whipped a bunch of young women? Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah, I definitely think that the 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 fact it's grounded in in reality and and uh, it has the ending that it has, I think, is really what makes it work on a on a comedy level. Um, and uh, yeah, I, like like the rest of y'all, I had no idea this was an actual real thing um, until Brett's uh, email, and it's so. It's one of those things that I, I, you know, I've heard people mention the, you know, before that like there's certain comedic scenes that are, you know, you you can't write them, um, but if you know when you pull it from reality and and kind of just change a little bit here and there, 
um, it, it can just be comedy gold. And that's exactly what this was. Yeah. And then, and then chapter 60, uh, I really appreciate all of the discussion of geography and all of that good stuff. But the Lambton worm is weirdly, I guess, given the, you know, the, the importance of it uh, to the world, which is to say very little. Um, it one of my favorite stories ever. It's a it, cool it's, story. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's I, I've loved it for a very long time. Um, and in fact, it was one of the one of those things that when I was a little kid, I read it and I was like, "You can, I could just like, I could write a version of this that would be better than the version it was introduced to me with. I could, I could write something. It would be interesting, and it would actually just be a retelling of a pre-existing story. And I think that's an interesting thing." because uh, uh, it meant that I spent a lot of time writing this week's summaries because I kept writing, like, a full-on story around the Lampton worm story instead of just, you know, summarizing it. Hence the very short version. <laughs> well, let's, um, let's, let's start with the, the 11 days uh, in, in Chapter uh, 56 and, and Mason's um, time spent within there. Um, I did, I did find it interesting that the use of, um, on page 555, the quote from Reverend Cherry Coke, where he says, those of us born before that fateful September observes Reverend comprise a generation in all British history, uniquely insulted each life carrying a chronologic wound from the same parliamentary stroke. I just thought that was interesting. The chronologic wound is what is what kind of caught me and, and got me thinking about the, the, mentions earlier the telluric wounds uh that had been inflicted on uh on the earth you know in in the mapping and and you know drawing of all these artificial lines um and there's kind of you know there's that parallel between you know what we did to the earth and and what we kind of essentially did to ourselves when we made that change and and the impact that it had on those people who were affected by it i think my favorite part of that chapter is the part where mason is talking about how he wasn't alone in the like the vortex, the vortex of the eleven days, and Dixon like cuts in and it's like, oh, you know, like you must have basically like you must have had sex with a milkmaid, huh? Like, tell me about it. <laughs> um, which like that kind of like kind of broy, like uh, I guess in the modern parlance, like fuckboy type thing. Like, um, I've had friends do that to me whenever I was telling a story that involved women, and they would be like, oh yeah, so next, like you know, what happened next is you. You you know did uh, did sexual stuff or whatever, and I've I've done that to other people where I've cut into their story and, and cut them off, and um, it it is just kind of a thing that guys do to one another. Yeah. Um, it sometimes as a joke, sometimes maybe a little bit more like eagerly. Um, but I did I did just find that part really funny, uh, and it's very as we've I think gone over a little bit. And I think one of Brett's emails might have mentioned that Dixon, even to this day, there are you know, he's never married, and there were people who um, claimed to be his direct descendants. Um, so you know, Dixon was obviously a little bit more adventurous uh, when it came to romance than Mason. Um, so I do think that uh, it is interesting that Mason kind of brushes him off whenever he says that. And I do think that it did make me think um, of the possibility of Mason cheating on Rebecca and how Mason is kind of the, the type of guy that you could, you could trust to to probably never cheat on, on a woman like Rebecca on, and considering the fact that he can't even move on after she's passed away. 
Um, you know, it seems kind of like not within character at all for him to um, cheat on her, even if it is in some other world, like other reality or something. Um, so it did. It, it I found that part very telling as a as a as as a comment on as a way to kind of interpret their relationship, and then to kind of as a way into uh, the details of their characters. So I, I think look, another. Sorry, go ahead, Will. Well, just a little thing. We need to make sure. Look, uh, we in general, in terms of like political stuff, we try to stay away from it. But this needs to be clear. We don't have any vorticists here, do we? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, that's good. I just had to make sure. Please continue. I, I mean, kind of building off of what what Luke is mentioning with the the relationship between Rebecca and Mason. I think it's it's interesting to denote that in a lot of the segments that where Mason is present in these chapters, he's described as being very downtrodden and depressed and sad. And I couldn't help but think about the fact that the last time we saw him was the conversations at the camp when he thought that potentially he had sort of met Rebecca again, like reincarnated in this, in this other woman who came to the camp. And then it wasn't until he had that conversation with Cherry Coke while Cherry Coke was in the bathroom where he basically dispelled any idea that that was the case. And I feel like that is why he is in such a melancholic state through most of these chapters that he like, had this opportunity, however remote, to potentially have been not just visited by the apparition of his wife, but to have somehow come in contact with a reincarnation of his wife, and that he he had almost like a hope that he would be with her again, and that was taken from him. So really, the, you know, just to kind of undergird the the seriousness of the way that Mason views that relationship, like the 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 remotest possibility. And of of something rekindling that relationship in a in a real way again being taken from him, you know, stays with him over the course of a winter season, you know, when he never really had any reason to believe that it was real in the first place. It was it was essentially a pipe dream. Um, it, just an interesting note that I that I kind of took down when I was reading through these chapters. So I, I wonder, moving on a little bit further, if right where. Um, Dixon begins to lean into the, the the hidden library shelves. I wonder if, you know, obviously for, for us now, reading it, Mason is spinning yarn. But yeah. at that point, does he realize, oh crap, I can't bullshit about this. I can't talk about the Oxford secret library. Better come up with an excuse why I never went back after the first 40 minutes. <laughs> Probably, probably right about that. It, it definitely does feel like somebody who's running out of steam in a story, which which does, you know, make sense because he he'd been telling this story for quite a while in terms of when, when the chapter started to where it ended. I do love the idea of the tragedy of Hypatia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or Aristotle on comedy. Like anybody who's read Aristotle, <laughs> it's the least funny philosophy. Plato is, a, yep. is rip roaring in comparison to Aristotle. Oh yeah, I mean Plato uses fun stories and allusions to other things, whereas Aristotle's just he's he's just sitting down and talking straight at you. I might rather read Hegel. Ooh, yeah, that's I I could see that. I, I also 
or the the inclusion of the the stuff from the infant infancy gospel that was yeah. was uh too good to to keep around or whatever the exact phrasing of it was <laughs> all the good bits thomas left out of the infancy gospel yeah 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 which is great because you know he, the infancy gospel talks about how you know baby, baby jesus made like toy birds come to life and stuff right so there's a lot of good stuff in there already does anyone know if that's a real area of the Baudelaire library is there like a restricted section i doubt that it would be something that's been written about but i'm convinced that every library has a restricted section that is accessible only by some form of, of magic or something that i'll never get to see <laughs> so i should ask my wife but she probably can't tell me it's probably some secret librarian thing probably true i do think that that's a real part of the oxford library um vaguely i i do remember um again hesitating to bring this up but um i remember when I, were, I was a teenager looking up stuff about the harry potter forbidden section of the library and reading stuff about that i think jk rowling has probably got that idea from the from the section of the oxford um library um i yeah because I, I whenever i was younger i think i'd i'd researched that um fairly in depth at least on the internet Interesting. Well, problematically, it seems like. Thank you, motorcycles. <laughs> it seems like they shot the restricted section sections of the Harry Potter movies at the Bodleian libraries. Oh. So uh, it's even like a a web search is not going to do us any good without a lot of close looking, I guess. Well, while we're on that section uh i'd really so there was a couple of quotes from this whole um this chapter that i really enjoyed um i really liked uh mason's talking about his the kind of um what what's the best way to describe them i don't want to say tendency like the kind of um he refers to it as evil appetite i think that's probably the best way of phrasing it but um mm -hmm. The, the I'll just read the little section here. It's, um, oh, and more. "'Twas as if this metropolis of British reason had been abandoned to the occupancy of all that reason would deny. Malevolent shapes flowing in the streets, lanterns spontaneously going out, men roaring as if changed to beasts in the dark, a carnival of fear. Shall I admit it? I thrilled. I felt that if I ran fast enough, I could gain altitude and fly. I would become one of them. I could hide beneath eaves as well as any. I could creep in the shadows. I could belong to the devil. Anything inside this vortex was possible. I could shriek inside churches. I could smash every window in a street, make a druidic bonfire of the bodleian. At some point, however, without human prey, the evil appetite must fail, and I became merely melancholy again. And it's... It's really interesting, I think, coming from Mason, especially given what we know about his character, that, that he admits to having those feelings and, you know, doesn't try to kind of couch them or hide them as he I kind of feel like he normally would, or at least wouldn't really openly confess to having them. Yeah, it might, it might be, because that, that is, I think, a familiar sort of sense mm -hmm. to anybody who's gone through particularly low points in their life. The, the, this rage and maybe you don't actually destroy a bunch of stuff but there's there's a stage in you know whether it's depression or grief or just a tough 
period. You know, you, you get wrathful and you just want the world to come to come to pieces so that you can make it better or at least so you don't have to deal with it anymore or something and it might be a just mason feeling like he can trust his companion or it could also be him kind of packaging this true feeling that he's almost certainly experienced as someone who's been dealing with grief for a very long time at this point uh, pa packaging it in a fantasy so that he doesn't have to admit to himself these real feelings he's had. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that this story definitely reveals a lot about Mason in a way that has not been so consciously revealed in prior sections. Um, and, and I think it, it's it's easy to dismiss it as just, oh yeah, he's playing a joke on Dixon and telling this really long-winded story to him um, but there's no, there's no real, uh, benefit in so detailed thinking at the time, if all you're looking to do is, is just kind of play a joke on a friend of yours. And so I, I think there's a, there's a lot that can be revealed, um, about different thoughts that he's had or, or potentially hidden aspects to his personality that he doesn't always talk about through the, the things that he mentions in these chapters. And there's, they're in this chapter particularly, and there's a lot of, just great quotes in this section, like the the descriptive mm -hmm. um, narration that that Mason gives is is excellent. Um, after it's like such a serious kind of uh, breakdown of one of them, which thank you, Will, your your insight there is awesome. Uh, I I feel as though I have to bring up another great quote from this section, which is when. Um, Dixon asks him about whether or not there's any animals that were there. And this is not a serious comment. It's more of a funny one. But uh, he says, were there yet horses about? Dixon wishes to know. Animals whose owners knew them made the transition along with them to the 14th. Most all the dogs, for example. Fewer cats. Like, just the inclusion that cats <laughs> yep. in particular are unknown by their owners, so they seem to have stuck around, is, is yeah. such a funny comment to include in this very, like serious metaphysical discussion of of these lost 11 days <laughs> i was gonna bring that up too yeah i really love that that little detail and not to mention the specific phrasing as well as two cows unmilked and at large yeah <laughs> <laughs> i also love that he calls himself a bradley olator bradley olator bradley um, olator yeah It's it's pretty it's pretty great and I'm I you know that that's one of these part of one of the parts of this chapter that I think might have some some meaning in there that I haven't really dragged out the general discussion of trying to find Bradley at Oxford I I, I my brain just slides right off of it so I'd I'd love if anybody has any insights into that you know, either here or on online please let us know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's not something I initially thought about when I was reading it. I'm thinking about it now. I'm wondering if it has to do, and this is just a kind of a knee-jerk reaction to that question, but if, it's, if he was looking for something familiar in the unfamiliar to kind of ground him in, in the situation that he was in and, and sort of uh, offer a sense of familiarity and, and comfort. I guess I'm, I'm just trying to think, why, why would young Mason, and it, you know, obviously just desperation, but why would young Mason assume that Bradley would be 
somehow trapped alongside him. Because it seems that's, like they yeah. hadn't quite made strong acquaintance, at least yet. At that time, yeah, that's true. You know, I I, I took it as, as mainly an illustration of just how much he cares about Bradley, like how Brad, how much Bradley's important to him, like kind of going back to the conversation we had when there was that sort of extended flashback to when Bradley and his wife and then Mason and his wife were living together and there was this kind of potential suggestion that it was more than just a living arrangement. Um, I think going going to here, you know, he went to sleep next to Rebecca and Rebecca wasn't there when he got transferred over. So maybe his next thought is maybe I can find Bradley somewhere. And, you know, as, as a result of his desire to, to meet something familiar or someone that he cares about deeply, Bradley's the next person that he thinks of. Um, as far as why Oxford, that was Bradley's alma mater. Um, he went to, to Balliol in, in Oxford. So that would be my assumption as to why Mason would be looking for him there. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. The specific the specific name dropping of Pelham really catches my eye too, but I have no reason for that. Well, anything else in chapter sixty that we want to, or sixty fifty six that we want to <laughs> touch on? Getting so far ahead of myself. Uh, I don't think I had anything. I I do like. Eh, I am the sniffer snipped, as Parker said when he put his head in the bear's den. <laughs> It is it is maybe the least understandable way to say, ah, oh, you got me. Yeah. Well, so 57 opens with the, I, I have to say, I wrote in my notes uh, in, in my book when it's, when the musical, or I'm sorry, the um, dramatic presentation, as it were, of... Um, the the musical drama i'm sorry of the black hole of calcutta is referred to as an uh having an inappropriate live inappropriately lively accompaniment i just wrote yeah um <laughs> i mean that those three words accurately summarize uh just all of that it's a great i mean it's a great scene it's a great chapter i just think like there's no other way to phrase making a musical drama about such a horrific event uh, I, as I sent to the, to the podcast group chat, I did, uh, on the listserv from the nineties, which I, for some reason feel like one of y'all brought, might've brought this up before, but apparently the black hole of Calcutta was the, uh, the CIA name for the Bay of Pigs in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs. So that listserv talked about how, you know, the name of the, of the musical drama would be, um, without, with like taking away the code or whatever it would be. Uh, the Bay of Pigs or the angry president, the angry leader, um, which is interesting to think about. Um, but I don't necessarily find anything in the description of the play or in the song that would kind of play into that uh, possibility. Um, just kind of generally, I do think it's interesting that we get that, you know, the Black Hole of Calcutta does seem to come up every like 20, 30, 40 pages. Um, it does make me think about a few different things. You know, like it, it is obviously a tragedy, um, but it's the type of thing, you know, like it made me think of after a while of 
um, you know, it comes up so much. I, I had to, I had to kind of repeatedly think about it. And, um, you know, the description of a bunch of people being stuck in a, in a dark, uh, crowded place and passing out from being crowded and from the body heat, um, from probably the humidity and stuff like that, you know, that kind of stuff does happen. You know, people are human trafficked on container ships. Um, it, I do find it interesting that I don't, I don't know if Pynchon is being historically accurate in terms of how much the black hole of Calcutta would have been mentioned in pop culture and in the news and in history and just kind of come up in daily conversation around this time. Um, because, you know, like stuff like that, you know, I, it barely, stuff like that barely makes the news, uh, at least when it's people who are being human trafficked or illegal immigrants and stuff like that anymore. Um, I do think it is kind of, I, I struggle to kind of parse, uh, parse this, but I do think it is kind of a, an inter- it's interesting to me that it's, that the, you know, it's, it's people that are colonizing India that are, uh, stuck in the black hole of Calcutta. Cause obviously if it was native, uh, Indians, um, you know, that wouldn't, they wouldn't even call it the black hole of Calcutta. There wouldn't be some, some, uh, catchy name for it. Um, it would just be, you know, another night in Calcutta or, uh, Bangalore, or Delhi, or, you know, um, I, I don't know. I'm looking at, I've looked at the Wikipedia page for the black hole of Calcutta and it does still come up in pop culture, even to this day, which is interesting. Um, I just find all of that interesting to think about, I guess. Well, yeah. I, I, I could see. So. To me, a vizier is a little bit more like an advisor than a than a king or a leader. Okay. And, and so I I could totally understand how, well, first of all, uh, how the CIA could in-house call the Bay of Pigs incident the black hole because in both cases you have, uh, you know, extra judiciary, extra legislative forces that are how regardless given full full backing of the governments of the countries from which they come uh, in the case of black hole it's the east india company and in you know the case of the cia it's north america, it's a, you know the us you you have these people who've been doing these things kind of on the edge of the the, the checks and balances of society and it just kind of goes out of hand and sure you know people blame jfk for the bay of pigs or what whatever however you want to lay down specific blame for the failures it goes both ways and the cia as advisors were not you know they didn't have a great head on their shoulders with regards to that just like the east india company uh, was clearly smoking a lot of their product when they uh, shoved a bunch of people into a hole. And then from from that, you know, you just kind of, I, I see a lot of similarities between the way that at least in this book, The Black Hole of Cal- Calcutta is discussed and the way that in the post-60s era, the Bay of Pigs was a regular reference point in television in news in just day-to-day conversation where it was it was everywhere you you did make jokes about it you did there was a, a levity to this very serious issue that had happened 
So maybe that's that's all it is, is he's basically parodying the way that culture takes these things and makes light of them because, you know, it happened to him or to, to us. I think the other thing that it made me think of, because to, to Luke's point, the Black Hole of Calcutta has come up a couple of times. I, I think that it's it's deliberately brought back up, or at least what I thought of after reading through this section, is that it's deliberately brought back up because the reader at this point knows how horrific that situation was in a, in a very visceral sense. And we've already had kind of Dixon balking at the idea that people would engage in a in a recreation of it for in in the case of when they were uh on their first journey together that took them to, to south africa for sexual pleasure that now he's reached a point of desensitization that he's sitting in an audience watching it performed for comedic um or, or at least entertainment in a mm. non-sexual perspective and it just doesn't phase him at all and that his first response after that is to immediately go to the to the the green room and kind of laugh and 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 take all of the the performers out for this like two day bender after their performance is over. So I think it's another thing that as we've kind of been watching Dixon become less and less aware and more and more desensitized to the suffering of people as he's been in America from a standpoint of the slaves and from something that he has already previously encountered and that the reader understands as being pretty heinous, now it just doesn't hit him at all. And so there's a, a very clear delineation between where the reader's perspective is and where Dixon's perspective is as he's sitting there watching it. Because I think most people would read through that section and see that there is a stage performance of, of this happening or, or a musical where this is referenced and kind of think to themselves, well, that's gross. I mean, that was what I certainly thought upon reading it. Um, and to see that there is no more, no, nothing left to Dixon where he's he, he's upset by that, but is instead ready to party afterwards, I think, speaks to where his character is at at this point after being this long in America. Oh, so now we're supposed to be disgusted by making musical dramas about horrific events? What is this? <laughs> Mantle culture? <laughs> Yeah, so I was thinking about um, when when Luke mentioned the um, the thing from the list serve and the, trying to connect it to them them trying to connect it to the the JFK situation and all that, and I, I think it's um, I kind of read this this section as a sort of commentary on just the the general desensitization of America or Americans rather, um, especially at, around this time, like the late nineties was a time where um, it, it, we were kind of, this, this was really pre, um, it was pre social media. So, you know, a lot of the representation of the violence that was happening uh, around the world and especially in the, in the country wasn't as, um, widely distributed or if it was, it was, um, it, it took more time to get out. And so by that time, you know, a lot of people weren't as uh, they were reading about it from further away from where it happened. We're we're not really as impacted as you know nowadays. We, when something happens, we're everyone's so connected now. There's a sort of sense of immediacy when these things happen now. But at at this time, you know, even at this point, this was you know thirty some odd years after JFK was assassinated, and that was really the first time that that 
we as 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 a society saw violence of that level on a screen um you know not not just a fictionalized account of it in a movie this was an actual happening of a person being murdered and millions of people saw it happen in real time um and and i think that that was kind of the beginning of this this sort of desensitization that started happening to us as a country and I think it it kind of has, I don't want to say it's kind of died down, but I think we've kind of got, we're getting back to a point of, of being able to understand the, the, the gravity of a lot of those situations and, and looking back on them and, and, you know, kind of recontextualizing them and, and, you know, some of the, the portrayals we've made of those events since they happened and, and seeing the kind of problematic nature of them. Um, but I, I do think that at the time that he was writing this, I think that, particular scene kind of reads to me as a a sort of commentary on that um, general desensitization as a society that we've had. Yeah, that's a great point, especially considering that we start to see some of the like beginnings of distinctly American culture in these chapters Mm -hmm. with that as an underpinning portion of what these chapters are about. I can absolutely see Pinchon creating something like that to to make a comment on the desensitization of america absolutely i also have to say that it's another instance where we see that dixon is is far better at getting along with differing groups of people because he goes from having this this bender with these actresses to when he meets the sons of of liberty as opposed to mason chapters before is able to actually like kind of instantly ingratiate himself and his Mm -hmm his false accent is not terrible. He seems suddenly... <laughs> I think to differ. <laughs> I mean, it's still bad, but compared to Mason... It, it's a low bar, it, though. It, it, it is, yeah, it, it is better. So we we get another example of, of him being more adept at actually integrating himself into different groups of people. Yeah, regardless of the accent, that, that remains true. Yeah. There, there is also a, a, a funny comment made in here about somebody getting married and moving to Long Island out of the city, which is still a paradigm to this day that people in New York do. <laughs> so that's another another point of, of comedy in this chapter for me. They weren't really in it. <laughs> they, they got married and moved to Long Island. It's exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. What did y'all think of the um, the scenes with uh, Dim Down and, and Bodine and um... I can't think of her name now. Um, oh man, my brain just shut down. Uh, dot. Yes. I really oh. like the the Fender Belly. I think it's I think it's called his like bi lunar uh, exhibition. His, his mooning the other the yeah. other ship. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I would have picked up on it if it wasn't if uh, if wasn't by lunar if it was just a lunar exhibition I'm not sure I would have picked up on what what that was talking mm-hmm. about but um but yeah I mean I think especially in the 90s you know showing your ass to somebody was called mooning them I think I don't you don't hear it as much any anymore but then I guess I'm not five years old anymore so <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's still the the phrase that is used it's been I have been so far removed from any of that kind of stuff. I don't know that that's still what it's referred to. I don't know. As the one who, who kind of counts as a youth still. 
in this group. I'm gonna say a, uh, a youth. A youth. I'm gonna say that I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't think there's a new term for that. I think I think mooning is still the only word we've got. Uh, you know, TikTok might might be different. You know, they might I, change the world in the last year, but I think that perhaps the practice has simply died out a little bit. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, and I was I was never really uh, endeared to the concept myself. So if that's any no, you weren't a fan of it. Will no, I didn't. You know, it just didn't seem like a worthwhile use of my uh, assets. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we've just discovered why sagging became trendy. There are all these myths about the origin. This may yeah. be it. Mm. Worthwhile theory. Ease, ease of learning. Yeah. I I do think that uh, Finchon turned up Blackie's accent a bit in this chapter. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Blackie. Thank you. Oh, yeah. That just clicked in my brain now. Okay. Like, he seriously talks like some guy who walks around complaining about how the, the tax on cigarettes went up by 2%. Uh, anything else on chapter 57? I, I just love the... Uh... The perennial American versus British beer debate. Oh, oh yes. yeah, I forgot about that. Yes, yes, the yes. real ale conversation yeah. at the end of the chapter. Yep, yep. Ale, the ale loyalty is is important to him. Mm-hmm. I forgot all about that. Yeah, and the uh, the, the phrase of who does the courtesy even in even swallowing this pale, hopped up, watered down imitation of small beer. And small beer, for any listeners or anybody who doesn't know, it's basically like, it's like Coors Light, essentially, but, you know, yeah, in the that's... colonial period. Mm-hmm. So he's saying it's like you took Coors Light, cheapened it, and then added more hops, mm-hmm. which is just a hilarious description of a beer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, obviously, like, real ale isn't, as big of a thing here as it is in England, obviously, like for for obvious reasons. But like, a friend of mine is an assistant brewer at this this brewery and tap room where I live, um, and they make real ale there. And to hear some of the people talk about it versus any other kind of beer really really portrays how this is something that probably has never changed. To this point, uh, it is a perennial. Uh, Competition, except these are Americans, which is even crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those people. Not not so much recently, but when I was younger, I was definitely on the side of if it's not a a porter or a stout, I want it not in my mouth. <laughs> I was definitely that as well. Is that how you would order beer? You'd walk into a bar and you'd say, "If it's not a porter or a stout, <laughs> I want it not in my mouth." Well, no, I'd, I'd I'd shorten it a bit. I'd walk up, open my mouth, point, and kind of go. Guinness, please. Yes. Okay. I was a big Guinness fan, too. Yeah. There, There is another line that, that made me laugh at the absurdity of it. Uh, it's on page 567 in this chapter. It says, Yet as no true macaroni would, in non-macaronic company, behave too macaronically. Oh, yeah. And that was the impersonation you saw defective. That is, I might have been more subdued about it. Just seems like Pinchon giving himself a challenge to see how many times he could use that word in in a single sentence. Yep. 
it's also I, I don't know what a macaronic uh, habit would be. I think that sentence counts. That's fair. Well, let's uh, go to the party scene um, in chapter 58. So Everybody light a whole pack of cigarettes. Yep. Let me, uh, let me get my... I'm not going to try to impersonate Tom Waits because I can't do it. <laughs> Just imagine oh. I'm, I'm having that raspy Patty and Selma kind of voice. Uh, I, I was just gonna say I read it as like a, a um, like a classic country song. I could see that, yeah. I'm curious though. I want to hear your rendition. Sorry to cut. You I off. can't. <laughs> <laughs> I would need if I was gonna do a Tom Waits rendition of this song. I would need some kind of like really good solid wood desk to smash as as a percussive instrument sort of thing. Um. Mm. I can't do it justice. But I did, I did genuinely though like in in um I did kind of get some Tom Waitsy vibes but I the the old country thing now that you mentioned it I'm definitely that's more I think more apt. I think the Tom Waits came from just the smokiness of everything. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I was embarrassing myself on the on again reading this on the plane uh just singing this to myself. Because <laughs> it for for me I was, you know I'd been listening to a bit of country and for some reason my brain was like no you're just going to sing this. I try to do that with, with all of his songs. I do try to kind of um, put music to them while I read it. Um, I usually end up, I'll read it like a couple of times, a few times, um, and just try to find the melody in it. Um, I've thought about trying to put, like actually record some of them, but I don't have the time or the patience to do it. it, it that might be my favorite song, though, of the book so far, at least. It is a good one. So I, I found it interesting the way that, that Mason was advising the Tuscarora chiefs, if only because clearly Mason is not, you know, unafraid of the Paxtons. Right. You know, he's not walking around waving a flag saying, come and get it. But, you know, he's not wearing, he's not happy about it either. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that speaks to the power of his visit to the massacre site, where you kind of, and it almost now that we're talking about it in such quick succession, almost stands in contrast to where Dixon is at in the, in the prior chapter, mm-hmm. where we have where we have Mason um, in in a callback to a previous moment in the book when he visited that massacre site and was was completely horrified by what he saw. Now he's actively taking a part in trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again by doing what he can to get these these natives out of the area. So that they're they're out of danger, um, so yeah, I think I think it's an interesting inclusion, definitely. But I I, I think it it speaks to kind of that these two characters are are potentially growing in opposite directions. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. After after, it's direct about how he feels um, that both the British and the American treatment of, of natives and slaves is wrong. Um, which, yeah, I think I brought this up before, but I did read a, a piece of scholarly work about um, that kind of talks about how Dixon is increasingly um, kind of angry and annoyed uh, by slavery and the treatment of natives in America. Over the course of this book, um, yeah, and I, I do think it's interesting that that seems to have kind of maybe rubbed off on Mason at least some. Um, Mason is probably it happens off the page, I guess, because we never really 
uh, pa- past the part about the Paxton massacre or the Paxton boys massacring the people. Um, you know, we never really see Mason and Dixon directly talking about uh, those those subjects, those issues. Well, I do. Th- I do think it's interesting in in looking at at this the forward movement Mason has made as, as a character and in, in his um comprehension of and understanding of the the treatment of of both the native americans and the, and the slaves that he's encountered while he's in america but then he does take a huge uh backslide when he drops the n-word and what seemed to me to be kind of like a a really bad attempt to i guess kind of like fit in with the crowd um but obviously did not work and immediately got um shut down by by Washington. I thought it was really interesting though. I'm, I wanted to get y'all's take on that. That you know, it, do you do you kind of get the same impression that he, that he said that for that reason, or did you take a different reading of that? Yeah, I, I that's exactly how I read it too. As, as a weird attempt to try and somehow fit in with with the crowd around him. There's a lot of very interesting kind of back and forths about slavery and racism in this chapter in particular because you have the end of that song talking about how the americans are never slaves again then you have Mm -hmm. you know this room full of presumably slave owners being entertained by someone who's probably gershom who is a slave and then you have mason using a, a a racist piece of language that you would think would fit in with people who are of a slave owning class who very clearly have some hatred at some point, uh, whether whether they've acknowledged it or not, to people of a different race, and then that getting shut down. There's a lot of... It, it seems as though, you know, Pinchon is deliberately trying to show how a lot of this stuff is paradoxical and yeah. doesn't, you know, doesn't really, really mesh with, with the reality of the situation, especially considering that... George Washington and, and the Sons of Liberty in the prior chapter are all very heavily linked to the eventual Declaration of Independence and the, the drawing up of the Constitution and how we have this phrase in there that says, you know, all men are created equal. But obviously that statement did not mean that um, when it was written and, and how that's sort of inherent to the 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 history that that we have to deal with from a lineage perspective in this country how there's this this compartmentalization of it that has existed since even prior to this country being its own. Yeah, I might read it slightly differently, but uh, I think the general tone of how you're supposed to how it's supposed to reflect on Mason is 100% in line with what y'all have uh, laid out. I I might say that it it is, you know, he's trying to be provocative in order to get his point across. That that's all. Is the only nudge I would say. Hmm. I don't think it's a, clearly not a good way because it clearly doesn't yeah, get no, the point across. No. But I think that might be the intention, given you know, especially Mason's sense of humor. I um, I'm not yeah, and I I'm not a hundred percent on uh, the historical um, like what what African Americans, what Black people would have been called in the 1700s. Um, I do think the N word is probably very widespread, even if you were um, against slavery, which it was probably pretty rare for people to be against slavery in the 1700s. Um, 
I don't think that the the word Negro uh, came to be until the 1800s, I want to say. I want to say I've looked into that in the past for some odd reason. Um, yeah, and I, I actually probably, I didn't necessarily realize that it was Mason that used the N-word. It does make sense him and that he would be trying to fit in. He's not shown to be particularly um, strong-willed or... You know, he's not he's not kind of the iconoclast that uh Dixon is. Um I also do think it's kind of funny that he says that word and then a slave kind of makes fun of him for the rest of the chapter. because uh, you know, he's probably the only British person in this billiards hall. And um his employer, at least indirectly, is the king, and then the king gets made fun of for the rest of the chapter. So you could kind of interpret that as Mason kind of being indirectly poked fun at by Gershom uh, or made fun of by Gershom uh, due to Gershom perhaps being unhappy with Mason using that word. Um, yeah, and you could even read it, and this is, let me, let me let me say, being very careful with my phrasing here, I don't mean anything larger by this beyond what I'm about to say. It could be framed as looking at the ways that despite racism, despite slavery, despite all of these horrible ways of uh, controlling and uh, torturing black people in um, the, in America, um, you still do have these genuine moments of equality. And it might take something as absurd as like the colonel and the king's servant and a bunch of other people showing up in a billiards hall and filling it up so tightly with tobacco smoke that nobody can see anything <laughs> to get there. But it, it, it you know, something Pinchon often talks about throughout his works is the ways that while he, he often discusses the ways that the mechanisms of control in our world are hard to defeat, he always shows little silver linings around the clouds and this might be one of them where Gershom is able to speak up for himself and is able to say oh you said that oh you're saying that word now are you and make put Mason in his place a little bit and also receive some general public appraise praise despite the fact that he is chattel let's go ahead we'll move on to the um, bizarre situation I guess is the (laughs) best way of uh of phrasing this whole um what like more povich kind of moment here of, yeah you know that's fair yeah it, i mean it really truly is this kind of um just chaotic kind of midday talk show situation that's i mean when i was reading it i was like this is the kind of like this is like jerry springer more Povich level of, of history, but it happened in the, in the late 1700s. So if, if there's no objections to it, since we already mentioned that this is a real thing that happened, mm-hmm. um, Brett linked us to a, the, the matter of record at which this story comes from, um, which comes from a page of the, the archives of Maryland meetings council. Of, um, does anyone have any objections to me just reading that? By all means. Okay. So December the 2nd, 1765, came Barnett Johnson, Constable of Linton, 100, 
five men with him be Edmund Morin, James Dawson, Nathan Lynn, John Gerlow, and Thomas Hines. So they got all five of these people forever in the history books as having done this, which I love. To the house of Conrad Wheat between the hours of 9 and 10 o'clock at night and asked for a quart of whiskey and got, bought, and got but a pint and then asked if there was a peddler there. Then they called Conrad Wheat out of doors and asked him if he would give up his daughter's child. He asked them upon what condition. They answered they had an order from the court for the child. Conrad Wheat demanded to see the order. Then Edmund Morin read the order. Then Conrad Wheat found the order was from Evan Shelby Esquire and not from the court and refused to let the child go. As the girl had given security to the court, which he thought was sufficient, then the constable commanded to lay hold. Then some began to stop the people belonging to the house from endeavoring to save the child. Then they began to riot and beat the people of the house, and Thomas Hines swore he would have the child dead or alive. Then they hurt one of the children belonging to the house, then one of his girls took his own child and ran out of the storeroom into the kitchen, and the rioters all followed her, and the people of the house shut the door after them and forewarned them from coming in again. Then they broke open the door and came in by force, and then they began to beat the people of the house. Some of them was not able to go to see the justice. And Tom Hines beat Margaret Wheat, the mother of the child, and swore he would be the death of her. And then Nathan Lynn took the child and ran out of the doors with it. And then one of the women belonging to the house got the child and ran out into the field. And Barnett Johnson and John Gerlow ran after her and beat her and took the child from her. And then they came to the house of Ralph Matson, where Evan Shelby was. And the constable took the child and delivered to Captain Evan Shelby. And he delivered it to William Hines. And Thomas Hines was heard to say that he made the... Dutch bitches blood fly and Kristen Matson asked Evan Shelby if the girl had not a right to keep the child if she could get security to keep the child off the parish and Evan Shelby made answer that she could get no security and refused Joseph Flint and Thomas Brooks likewise Evan Shelby said that if he ever catched Conrad Wheat in Maryland he would have him cropped for disobeying his orders and not delivering up the child and said if he had gone he would have burnt his house over his head likewise William Hines and Thomas Hines gave Evan Shelby a bond of 100 pounds in behalf of his lordship to keep the child off the parish, witnessed by Edmund Morin and Thomas Polk. Evidence is present that saw the riot, John Barkley, Peter Steed, George Rush, Henry Russ. There is a postscript, P.S. When they came before Joseph Warford in order to have their child, Evan Shelby demanded a warrant of Charles Fine, but Joseph Warford refused to grant it. Then Evan Shelby writ one himself and demanded Joseph Warford to sign it, but he refused then. Evan Shelby signed it. She was taken, and Thomas Hines gave his note to Evan Shelby, Evan Shelby for her fine. There was a sort of riot committed by Thomas Hines and others against Conrad Wheat. His family much abused. They was taken by precept and brought before me and was like to be bound over court. But to serene themselves, Thomas Hines gets the girl on his lap and was very sweet. I, seeing that Hines, as you have spoiled this girl, and taken her credit from her, you ought to marry her. He said, I have not made much against it, I will consider of it. The father of the girl made answer, the pounds and the five pound wedding. And upon the whole, they agreed to be married. As they tell me, they were fairly married by Evan Shelby Esquire. The evidences are these. Joshua Meeks, Arch Flegger, Will, Hart Christ, Matson John, Plackies, Warford. And then it kind of goes into the actual marriage order itself but it's it's more or less as has been read there exactly what occurs in this chapter like pinch on yeah. changes almost none of it 
<laughs> um, it's wild. Even down, yeah, even down to the details of when the the proposal for marriage happens, where it says Thomas Hines gets the girl on his lap and was very sweet. Yeah. Like, you would think that that would be something that you'd embellish for a story, but nope, that's exactly what happened. It's, I mean, it is seriously some of the funniest stuff ever written, probably. Because it's... Mm-hmm. And he, he does write it in as comic a mode as he's capable of in, in Mason and Dixon, not the, not the proper record-keeping, I mean. It's, it's just uh, crazy. The, the way that this kind of stuff happened and continues to happen hopefully not very often obviously but you know like truth is stranger than fiction goes the cliche yeah absolutely the truth and you know it's it's not that pinchon doesn't add anything here that makes it even more absurd you know there's no there's no record in in the archive here that they were tossing the baby around um yeah i was you know i was gonna bring that up yeah, like, like, you know, like a game of hot potato or whatever. But it, it is it is just those those very slight changes uh, for for some level of embellishment. But yeah, the, the core of it is is such a testament to the idea that truth is stranger than fiction. I uh, this is a bit random, but uh, the first the first novel that I wrote uh, a few probably seven or eight years ago uh, featured um, a couple that has a kid that was supposed to grow up to be a villain. And I ended up focusing on the parents relationship a lot more than the whole kid becoming a villain villain aspect. But, um, there is a scene in there that I pretty much stole from this scene where, uh, the, the couple are past like, you know, throwing around the kid like a football. And I remember my mom was like pretty much the only one that read that novel. And she was like super, super horrified that I had included that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so as previously promised in the beginning, the the section of this chapter that made me laugh so hard that I needed to stop and restart only to laugh again um, comes from the description of the riot as it happened, which is on page 578, uh, where it says, A sister swoops in to snatch the baby and bring him in his swaddling, looking like a little stuffed cabbage leaf back to the kitchen, whilst the others in the house shut and bar the door, though not for long. As the riders close behind begin breaking it in. The boy has a compress of arnica tea upon his thumb by now and will be all right. Conrad has a lot invested in the door, oh, which yeah. he's carpented, carved, and hung <laughs> all with his one set of hands. He watches, not yet able to believe that these men he thought he knew could become a band of raiders who mean him harm and his grandson as well. Just the idea that he's... <laughs> He's this horrible situation is happening all around that he can't believe, but he's stopping to consider how much time he's put into the door that's hung on the hinges and that he's made himself. Just that, like, he's standing there probably having memories of carving out the door of the day he put up the door. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it, it's like those damn kids in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was. I've been, um, and the, the timing on this could not have been more perfect. Um, and there's no way that this one thing influenced the book, but, um, while I was reading this chapter, I had been, I've been rewatching King of the Hill and that particular scene came off as such a Hank Hill moment of just like, like you said, Kate, like all this chaos going around and his main concern is like, I worked really hard on that door 
<laughs> and it's not like this isn't going to end well for the door. Like, never mind the people, the living beings that are around me. I really put a lot of effort into this door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just imagine him standing there with such like a, a morose look on his face. Well, all this like chaos is around him. Yeah. Staring at the door. Do you know how long it took for me to find a board with no knots in it? <laughs> As someone who has handmade doors before, I spent a summer doing it. I kind of get it. Like, there's a lot of work that goes into making a, a solid wood door. So, I'm sure. Uh, it's, you know, I get it. Well, see, I, I thought you might um, bring up... I was bleeding. I have the marks here. I have the mark... Uh, sorry. I have the marks yet. Here, can you see my back? It was but a willow switch, and you were curled up so tight. I'd never harm you, Katie. Oh, yeah. Like, what? It's just so much a blatant lie. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that neither... That she doesn't challenge. Why, would, why wouldn't she challenge that? Right. She's just fine with that, for some reason. For some reason, that just seems to be a, a wholly natural thing. And she has so many strange quotes during that section she's she's not doing a a lot for the reputation of people named kate um (laughs) and like the the other one when the the actual like fight is over when she's (laughs) when she just immediately is okay with them getting married where she's like what (laughs) what does she say here i'm trying to find it now on which she kind of like resignedly just accepts uh, yeah, the marriage. Yeah, on five eighty, when she goes, then was three months ago. You could have just married me then, saved us all this. <laughs> like, like, just, just <laughs> the the nonchalant way with which this this other Kate is just like, we didn't need to go through all this. You could have just gotten married to me. <laughs> like, oh my god, it's the same kind of tone as like going on a road trip or something and then finding out that you've been on a detour for no reason for like yeah. a day. Right. But it's three months and it involves kidnapping and assault. <laughs> or just like wanting to give a gift to somebody that is it, like or <laughs> getting increasingly more and more difficult to like source or get or whatever. And then you have to make like an apology to them when you present them with whatever you did end up getting like well you didn't have to go to all that trouble you could have just (laughs) you could have gotten me you could have just gotten me a gift card to that store you didn't have to whip me right (laughs) you didn't have to break my dad's door down that he spent so long making really worked hard on it (laughs) but he used the two hands that he has I do think it's interesting to look at this chapter through the lens of Pynchon kind of consistently throughout his book, uh, his books, um, exploring the more uh, uh, stranger, more outre, more kind of fucked up. um, A lot of different adjectives come to mind. Uh, Aspects of romance and sexuality, um, atypical romance, atypical sexuality. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of different examples I can think of, you know, like the, the, the most poignant romance in Gravity's Rainbow is between a man who, a man and a woman and the woman is engaged to someone else. 
Um, the central romance in Against the Day is with a woman who is uh, dating and marries the man who killed her father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the Doc Sportello has a bunch of different um, kind of weird romantic dalliances. Uh, Zoid is still in love with a woman who, um, you know, may not have ever loved him. And, um, completely abandoned him years ago and he just can't get over it. Um, and even in V, the main character is obsessed with, uh, a robot basically, or some type of mystery woman. Uh, Oedipa is, you know, commits adultery. Her and her husband both cheat on each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily have a normal marriage. Um, so yeah, it does seem to be a consistent thing with Pynchon that he is gets into um, kind of the stranger aspects of, of romance. It really makes you wonder what his relationships in life have been like. Yeah, I, that has occurred yeah. to me as well, that thought. Yeah. Because I could absolutely see Pinchon being in a relationship like the relationship between Sportello and Penny Kimball. Like, I could absolutely see that being something that he's experienced. Yeah. But a lot of the other ones are very, to your point, Luke, very, I think you used the word outro, which is very strange and and outside the norm. Um, yeah. I think the only thing that we really know about Pynchon and romance is that uh, Playboy article, who is Thomas Pynchon and why did he run away with my wife? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, even if that can be taken at face value, because there's no right. real, yeah, you know, no one can verify that necessarily. That's true. But yeah, that does portray him as uh, getting close to his friend's wives and then stealing them, Um, which I don't necessarily put too much stock in. Yeah, but it's common in his books enough that I I wouldn't worry about the the real the reality of it, per se. Mm -hmm. It's, It's clearly something that's on his mind a lot, whether he actually does it or not. Yeah. Which is, you know, not not exactly pleasant, but. It is interesting. Did y'all, and this is, again, uh, me as the the elder here, dating myself maybe, but did y'all catch the magic eye? I uh, did. I did. Yes. Okay. Good, 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 good. Not feel better now. Well, so I, I, I have a scrap of a memory somewhere deep in my mind. Um, that that is actually the source of magic eye puzzles. That it was. I think that's right. Paper. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody definitely had, makes like, sense. Woke up dazed and was like, "Huh, there's a 3D image in front of me." It, it's it's okay, Cody. To to date myself a little bit, my first thought after reading that was the episode of Seinfeld where George Watts is staring at the magic eye painting in the bathroom, walks out with his shirt. Oh on. yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> See, my mind went to I, I I magic eye was huge for me when I was a kid, but um I was my first thought was the scene in Mallrats where uh I can't remember the character's name, but Ethan Supley's character couldn't see the sailboat that was in the picture and he just spent the whole movie frustrated about it. <laughs> what does the youth have for us? Well yes. so we're, we're, no, it's not nothing youth related. Where where is this? I I've lost the Okay The Magic Eye thing? Yeah, it's five eighty. Five eighty three. Okay, never mind whatsoever. Never mind me. Anywho, uh, any any comments on Captain Shelby's skill with a pen? <laughs> that was clever. Um, 
I mean, other than like the, I was, I was concerned by the sheer volume. <laughs> Definitely. I yeah. mean, it doesn't, it, it doesn't read as though these are small pictures, you know, like it, mm -hmm. it's kind of implied that they're, they're painting with broad strokes, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, as, as someone born with uh, the convenient genitalia for this purpose, I, I've, you know, been there, done that. Never in my life have I ever attempted to fill out, fill in an outline. Yeah. I, so being in South Texas, I, uh, the only times we've had snow, I was six months old and, um, in my late thirties. And let me tell you the, the, the sort of like primal instinct to do that uh, hit in a weird way. Like when we got a lot of snow a few years ago, uh, that was like one of the first things I thought of was like, Oh, I could go in the backyard. Um, but I just kind of was like, no, I can't, I'm, I'm 30s. I think I was 37 at the time. Like dude, I can't do that. That's that time has passed. I, I don't have that ability. But then reading this, I was like, there's no way you could like, there's no way. Well, there's no like, way you Right. With your remote <laughs> Yeah. My old I, man. I, well, I don't know. How, we don't, how old is Captain Shelby? Do we know? No, I don't know. He's probably a lot younger than me. I, I, My I doctor do love that the, the other one has to remark on it and just says, wow, you that's, really that's, had to use the bathroom. <laughs> well, actually, I think, it was, um, I think it was Shelby who was remarking on that, wasn't it? Yeah, Shelby was I the one so, who yeah. signed his name. Um, and the other guy was the one who, who drew Tom the shape. Tom was the one and, that drew the heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think I think that I read that as basically, you know, Shelby was up in the middle of the night, paranoid as hell because he was drunk and hungover at the same time, and he's sitting there staring at the fire. And then Tom comes down. He's like, "Oh, you're gonna escape, are you? No way, you're getting out of here." Yeah. And then he's like, "Oh, so you did actually need to pee? That wasn't bullshit." Yeah. Yeah. But that that is simultaneously that is a typical uh two guys using using the bathroom at the same time kind of thing is it um, it sadly is um, like i cannot tell you how many times talking about just the talking the 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 conversational um aspect of them and and the comments that are made i you know and this may be a, a regional thing but people here uh are very talkative in public restrooms and i don't like it um, and that, this scene kind of made me think of that. Like if I'm, if someone else is around me, I don't want to talk at that time. And so, but seeing these two, like not just talking, but also like the comparative nature of what they're doing. Like it, I, I, I've seen it and it's weird and it was weird reading it, but funnier reading it than being around it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now that I think about it, definitely like late, late at night in a bar or something. Definitely. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, it's awful but it is hilarious to hear stories about third person. It's always funny. Yes. So it seems like Shelby would have been actually around his mid thirties or early forties. Okay. Um, cause and he, that was, was in the 1700s when their health was worse. So I should be fine next time it snows, which might be this year. I can, we'll see. Age is no longer going to stop you. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> I will defiantly shake my fist at the at the sky. Yeah. Before my neighbors things. call the police. 
Um, so yeah, he died at seventy four in nineteen ninety four. So yeah, he would have been he would have been in his like yeah. early forties. Well, do we go on to the Lambton Worm story? Does anybody have anything else they wanted to bring up here? Not in that chapter, but I do find it interesting the way that they they, they spend so much time on Captain Shelby also having experience surveying. And the way that he's contrasted to these other three surveyors, who, sure, Captain Zhang is by far the most, uh, uh, let's use uh, the most accurate term I can think of, hippy-dippy of them all. Yeah. Um, and he, and, and he's, you know, the most foreign of them all. But uh, then the one who's right here, the, the surveyor who's right here, who has built his own fort and isn't surveying, literally surveying the range every day. Um, he's also like kind of a monster. And I think it maybe serves to, to illuminate how just how different this American surveyor is. And he's from Wales, but he is American, right? He, everything yeah. about his character is very American as contrasted to the way that the English characters are written. Oh, absolutely he is. Yeah. Which in a way makes him the most American character in this book. A, a immigrant who is who is really into the idea of being an American. It's really it's true. Really emphasizes that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do appreciate his uh, his complaining about simple quadrilaterals and doing the fancy stuff over in the New World in terms of uh, allotments and such. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then we then we get a little bit further discussion of the the whole dragon of the land thing. But I'm not sure it does it goes very many places other than to prompt uh, the retelling of the Lambton Worm story. Yes, which I'm curious if that should have been spelled W Y R M instead of W R M. Because at at first I was picturing like an inchworm. <laughs> Like um, an earthworm, yeah. Yeah, but, well, so, but then... So that is the story. It is it is like an inchworm at first. That's so the, strange. Uh, Pynchon is in, adapting it a little bit by making it into a little demon snake thing. In the original, it is like an inchworm or a, like a... What is it? Like a selver? An elver? Right. Yeah, because, I mean, if it was if it was a, a worm with the, the W-Y-R-M spelling, that would be much closer to an analog for, for a dragon. Um, yeah, that's a, a Germanic folklore thing that, you know, it's where you get like the, the world serpent and all of that. Yeah, I, I, there there is a bit of a debate in like, I forget what, what you would call it, but I guess it would be like anthropology or myth, mythological studies as to whether the, the British tradition of worms truly count as dragons, because clearly mm -hmm. there's a ton of overlap and, you know, it, at this point in time, it's considered as though they're conflated, but they are distinct in a historical sense. So I guess what was, what was everyone's impressions of the story? Did anyone have a, a specific takeaway from that, that story being retold? I loved it. Um, I'm, uh, I've, I've said it several times before, like I, I, I'm a big fantasy reader. Um, so these kind of stories, especially that have that, that sort of... Um, old like Norse mythological feel uh, you know your your kind of Beowulf feel those always grab me I love them and so this one 
I'm fairly certain I've heard this story or variations on it before, and I just totally forgot about it. Um, but I, this was a chapter that I, I read and then reread because the first time I read through it, I just, I realized I wasn't really stopping to like take notes or anything. I just was reading it for this, the sheer pleasure of reading it. Um, it's, it's a wonderful story. It's a great telling of it. And I think it really, um, parts of it highlighted, not just Pynchon's strength as a, as a writer, but in other genres as well, because there's, you know, aside from the fantasy elements, there's again, uh, a lot of great horror, uh, writing that exists in this chapter, um, that really sets a great tone and, and really, um, it does a good job of, of driving home the, the kind of, um, grand nature of this, of the story and, and everything. And then, the, you know, the ending, the kind of the twist of, um, you know, the, the person who's cursed and, and the per or the person he's supposed to kill, but then refuses to. And it's, I just, I loved it. It was a great, a great telling of it. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, in the beginning of the show, I, this is genuinely, you know, if I, if I were to sit down and, rank my top folk tales of all time this would genuinely be at the, the in the top like five or so because it's just a cool story and i don't really I, I i it might just be because i know the story so well and i have spent so much of my life thinking about it um i i, I may just be blind to the analogs in the greater work we're discussing here uh but regardless of any of the thematic stuff i it's truly a satisfying adaptation of a of a classic story that that fits that fits very well i did learn from reading the uh the wikipedia page about it that it may have been the inspiration for jabberwocky oh interesting oh nice so if anybody hasn't read <clears throat> jabberwocky um it's a poem that lewis carroll wrote it's really good. Even better is the the Terry Gilliam film adaptation of it, um, yeah, which is really, un, uh, really underappreciated, especially in Gilliam's work. Um, so go find it, watch it. It's great. Yeah, and you know, I I know that my summaries are compelling, but it, again, if anybody is for some reason listening to us without having read this book, go read this chapter at least because this yeah. is one of the best told stories. Ever, I mean, it's it's genuinely a perfectly told little subsection of this greater work. It's it's, it's fantastic. It's it's so engrossing. Like it really just, it, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, and it would work as a as a standalone story pretty well, I would say. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, as as far as like whether or not there's really any any material that this adds to the the greater work, like. It could be an example of of Cherry Coke narrativizing or or embellishing the truth of his story to entertain the kids. Like his inclusion of it being there could be something getting to that idea that that he is an unreliable narrator, adding things to his his tale in order to stay in the house longer. Um, I doubt it has anything to do with the book as a whole, but the whole idea of, of cursing the sons of the fathers for nine generations has a very distinctly judeo-christian uh bend to it in in a lot of the the old penal code of kingdom of israel i doubt that there's anything there for the, for the book but it was what it made me think of it's the, the nine years part 
the the nine generations part oh the nine generations um, i was gonna say because the apparently nine i found this on the pension wiki the number nine is uh has a lot of association with the chinese dragon so oh that i didn't know huh but there there is a lot of there are a lot of um moments in the old testament penal code in particular that that state that if a, a sin is committed then the, the the Lord God will will visit the punishment of the sin for multiple generations after the one who committed it. So that that was something that I, that it, it prompted me to think about. Yeah, it's it's you know it's two plus three plus four, and in Western numerology, two and three are perfect numbers, and so adding them together is also perfect. But uh, four in Eastern numerology, at least Chinese numerology, which Zhang is Chinese, is very not good so i guess that does add up to dragon right perfect but evil perfectly not good yeah um i it just caught my eye uh um the beginning of 595 in most editions uh tis that worm in that well that's the signature here Set in a tent opening, a twilight breeze off the mountain blowing in around him, flaming autumn sky behind him, Evan Shelby is suddenly taller, da 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 The ancient figure of the serpent through the ring, or sacred copulation, a much older magic and certainly one that the Christians wanted to eradicate. And that's referring to the fact that very many snakes, when they're breeding, uh, some of them, like garter snakes and grass snakes, which would be the only kind that Brits and Welsh were familiar with, uh form like these giant orgies mm-hmm. that sometimes appear to be rings it's wild and some people believe that to be and the i don't think there's any stock i don't put any stock in this but some people do think that that has something to do with the symbol of oroboros which uh, you know if you've read gravity's rainbow is pretty near and dear to pinch on heart mm-hmm. so I, I could maybe it links into the into that the, into the larger story there in kind of the same way that the Mobius strip um, Conestoga cigars are. Oh, sure, yeah. Are y'all ready for my bizarre Wikipedia deep dive thing that I just found about the Lambton worm? Oh, boy, here we go. Literally just found this out. So apparently um, Anthony Schaefer, the screenwriter for The Wicker Man, the original one, not the Nicolas Cage one. Okay. um, was going he wrote a film treatment called the loathsome lambden worm which was going to be a direct sequel to the wicker man first off that's a horrible title it is (laughs) objectively a terrible title yes (laughs) so that could have been a thing um sequel would have involved the original film's protagonist a scottish police officer battling the lambden worm however it was never officially produced what a a Scottish police officer battling the Lambdenworm. Not just the title. That sounds like a really bad premise. Yeah, it does. That's probably why it never got off the ground. Because I can totally see where you're going with it. Because the you know all the Wicker Man stories and all that, you know, combining it with a with a noir is a thing, and you could do the same with the Lambdenworm. But no, it doesn't make any sense to have a police officer fight a dragon. No. Now, Nick Cage fighting a dragon. I, I Again, given our pitch for our, our yeah. Willy Wonka movie last time, <laughs> we could make this happen. Yeah. I mean, we could even just remake, like, Reign of Fire, 
but just change <laughs> out Christian Bale with Nicolas Cage. Holy It'd be a shit. lot like that that what the Curse of the Witch movie. With Sean yeah. Lee. Yeah. There you go. That was not good. All right, let's go ahead then and move to our um, funny parts. I guess, we, Kate, you already kind of went over yours with the um, the door. Did you have anything else, or was it was that the one? I, I That would be the, my biggest one, but I added all of my smaller ones in. That was definitely a good one. I think the only one that I really highlighted, other than really the whole... I think the whole of chapter 59 is, is pretty hilarious, but uh, <laughs> I did also really like the, uh, the Fender, Bo- Fender Bodine's um, battle technique of mooning as a distraction. Yeah, that would probably be my, my, my choice, my, my pick. I, I guess, and it's a little one, because uh, 59 as a whole, and the, some of the, basically that stretch that, that we kind of went through while we were covering chapter 59 in the courtroom it's probably the funniest part to me but the close second is just kind of bookshana i do not do deaths i am far too cheerful you want to see a romanian for that sort of thing yeah it <laughs> is just one. in the middle of a very serious story that has some very uh, like significant historical implications not you know realistically but it kind of has some implications historically there's just a crack of a joke from a, a Roma, like, Sybil. It's just like, I don't do mm. that dark shit. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and uh, do quotes. So my quote comes from chapter 60. Um, and in particular, it starts, it's a little bit of a longer one, but it starts on page 586. Um, this is where sort of like Will was kind of alighting earlier about Shelby's experience with, with surveying. This is something that comes from that, that portion uh, where it says, Shelby is, of course, also a surveyor who ranges these mountains all bearing and wielding his instrument like a weapon. Oh, oh I saw upon the instant how this was, darkly to Dixon. I saw how the ancient sorcerers must have enjoyed what they did. At our pleasure, we may look through this brazen tube, through glass mathematically shaped, and whatever desirable scene sweeps by as we turn it, why tis ours for writing down the angle. Good heavens, what power. There's a love of complexity here in America, Shelby declares. Here space awaits the surveyor. No previous lines, no fences, no streets to constrain. Polygony, however extravagant, especially in Maryland, where encouraged by the resurvey laws, more properties may possess hundreds of sides their angles pushing outward and inward, all sides zigging and zagging, going ahead and doubling back, making loops inside loops. In America, t'was ever, oh, to simple quadrilaterals. Eh, Dixon nodding vaguely. He's never regarded his occupation in quite this way before. His journeyman years coincided with the rage, then sweeping Durham for enclosure. Aye, and alas, he has attended at that altar. He had sliced into polygons the common lands of his forebears, he had drawn lines of ink that became fences of stone. He had broken up herds of fell sheep to be driven ragged and dingy off through the rain. The gates in exile. He had turned the same covetous angles as the Welshman, though perhaps never as many, for Shelby seemed seized with goniolatry or the word of 
finding tracks burgeoning and land by many of these exhilarating instrumental sweeps as possible. I picked that quote in particular because I think it it illustrates the differences between these two men very well in mm-hmm. that in a, in a very American speaking of the previous comments that we made way you have this one character Shelby who's who's seeing it as an opportunity to divvy things up to potentially make profit to you know continue to to exercise the the power of the line so to speak to use that quote from chapter 59 and what it is that he can kind of gain from that and then you have you know Dixon on the other hand who just sees it as sort of a a contractual thing I, I've been asked to do this and I'm going to do this because this is what my job is there's no further self-benefit out of this there's no divvying up of any sacred land or anything and I think that that gets to a lot of themes we've talked about in the book it gets to you know the discussion that Luke initiated several episodes ago about America as analog to Eden or the promised land in the way that that Shelby is talking about how it's a, it's a fertile landscape untouched by lions previously versus where you know Dixon comes back to with with Durham when he was finally in his role was it was it was the the final closing off of the place that he was he was from all the lines are already set in place but it also gets to uh the conflict with Zhang from the previous chapters where he's talking about this this reality that that they shouldn't be etching these these arbitrary lines in the back of they should be instead trying to to match the 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 spiritual aspects of of the land as a living being and paying more respect to that whether it be through through feng shui or the previous mentions of ley lines um i i think it's it's a case that that gets right to the heart of this this idea of land as commodity and how that seems to be a very American thing as Pinchon has been writing in the book so far. Yeah, I had that section highlighted as well. I thought that everything you said was spot on. Um, That was a really good section. Excuse me. I had originally uh, selected the start of chapter 60, but I'm going to change mine. Uh, I had a second oh. one set, yeah. and I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to pull that one out. Um, so this is on five fifty six, uh, kind of the beginning of chapter fifty six. This is where Mason is describing the um, the feeling of of being in the the eleven days, the the sort of vortex whirlpool of time that he was in. You'd have felt it as a lapse of consciousness, perhaps. Yet soon enough, I discovered how alone it was possible to be in the silence that flowed, no louder than wind, from the valleys and across those hill villages where, instead of populations, there now lay but the mute effects of their lives. Ash-whitened embers that have yet gave heat, food left over from the last meals of September 2nd, public clocks frozen for good at midnight between the 2nd and the day after. Though somewhere else in the world, which had jumped ahead to the 14th, they continued to tick onward, to be rewound, to run fast or slow, carrying uh, carrying on with the ever-problematic lives of the clocks. Uh, I just, I love that description. I I think it's, it does a really good job of kind of, putting in words a very abstract concept that I, I don't think um, many other authors could really pull off very well. Um, 
but I think this is in, in the span of a paragraph, it really encapsulates what that sort of really surreal sort of feeling would, would probably be like. Uh, my favorite quote um, comes from chapter 56. It's uh, presence lay everywhere on ambuscado. I dared not lift my eyes to what all too palpably waited, poised upon the ancient ceilings, winged, fatal. Then a sudden great whir at my face, scientifically no doubt a bat, though at the moment something far less readily named, provoking a cry of fear, as at last I broke into the open air of a quadrangle, yellow in the moonlight. Um, I just love it. I can't remember if Kate brought that quote up or not earlier, but... um. I just love that that quote. I love the word ambuscado in general. Uh, it's such a more such a more fun sounding word than ambush. Um, I don't know that the the all of chapter fifty six has some really cool imagery. Um, it's just really fun to think about that old chapter. Yeah, that that quote was actually um, I think probably my second choice, Luke. So you came close this week. Almost got him. <laughs> <laughs> but it, that that you're right that that entire chapter 56 every scene that mason tells is just beautiful uh but but i went with the other horror part horror part just to clarify um on chapter five, or sorry on page 590 in chapter 60 at first look impaling foreigners seems to have agreed with him he is tanned and fit and easy in the saddle but beneath the hardy mask lies the dread of what he will encounter. Approaching the castle, he can smell the worm long before he sees it. He would have much preferred a dragon, dragons having, from time to time in County Durham, chosen to infest the roads and lay desolate the countryside, it falling usually to such known anti-draconical anti families as the Latimers, Weevils, or Mowbrays to respond. But those creatures were winged and clawed, fire-breathing, noble in conformation. The reptilian detailing ever harmless, almost an afterthought. Nothing like what John Lampton, rounding the last bend before home, beholds, recognizes, and understands as his own creation, something he must now before God deal with. Time has not been kind to the worm he threw in the well. It had been unpleasant enough to look at when only Elver size. Now, despite what he has seen in the east, he must labor not to turn away. The eighteen vents have grown astonishingly and hang, pulsating, each surrounding by a deep black annulus of something glistering and corroded. The face has lost the youthful malevolence that, that Lampton remembers, has rather become deep in its abandonment, now purely a weapon in the service of bloodlust, a serpent's gift for paralyzing its prey with a certain gaze that the potential luncheon, once returning it, is helpless to defy. Even Lampton, though at a safe enough distance, finds it strangely attractive. Just because, I mean, that's... It's incredibly effective, to me at least. It, 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 it mm -hmm. really does capture what I think, you know, all these folktales have various morals to be pinned to them, but I think the one that Pynchon clearly finds the most interesting is the idea of, you know, making your own demons and having to clean it up later and the ways that you know, doing it doing anything half-assed can cause issues for generations um, I think he 
in those two chapters, he perfectly captures the sense of just horrible regret of like, oh God, I've done this. I did that. I have a problem. I think it's very effective. Absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, we did get an email from uh, Brett on our part two coverage of, of chapters um, 51 to 55. Um, whoever wants, sorry guys, my voice. Whoever wants to go ahead and read that, I'm going to drink some water. <laughs> um, from Brett, more great work from you all, and I have nothing can. I enjoyed Kate's reading of the episode 53 epigraph and the ensuing discussion. Thank you, Brett. It really captured a big part of the Pinchon mission statement, I think, and provided a lot of thoughtful reflection on the role of religion in the novel. At the most recent Pinchon conference I attended, I met a lot of theology and religious studies grad students and faculty members really interested in Mason and Dixon, and you captured why. You all might find this long article interesting. My high school basketball coach and English teacher sent it to me a few weeks ago, and I enjoyed reading. Beyond that, I can be most helpful by adding some context in advance for this next week's reading. In particular, episode 59 captures the Tom Hines Catherine Wheat affair in Pinchon Source that is readily available on. I am attaching all my annotations for episode 59. There may be some small type since these are on pages in case they'll be helpful. Volume 32 of the Proceedings of the Council of Maryland are available online and below the notes list page numbers, so you should be able to jump right to the relevant if you're so inclined. This link should go directly to page 155 since a lot of this comes from. 56. Hope this stuff helps for episode 59. Let me know if there's anything else I can do to be of use, Brett. As always, Brett, thank you for your contributions. Um, and thank you for sending that article along, the uh, the Far Invisible article. I uh, read through that twice, and I took a lot of very interesting notes from it. Um, as somebody who is, who is a former, I, I suppose I'll be haughty and say theologian, only in that I did a lot of <laughs> writing on theology, and that was what my focus when I was in seminary was for. Um, seeing his work framed that way gives a lot to the things that I found interesting in his writing for quite a long time. Um, so I appreciate you sending that along. I found it very As always, we'll include in our show notes for everybody else. Yes. And I, I'm no theologian. But as a youth whose grandmother has said he'd be a good Bible teacher, <laughs> I agree. I think it's a really insightful article that uh, I, you know, I haven't read it all the way through. I read it halfway, but I was taking it slow and uh, thinking a lot about it. I I look forward to not having to just rant and try to get words out so that I can kind of get some of the ideas I've tried to get across in the podcast in the past. I can point to that in the future mm. that'll be very nice well as the uh old person here um <laughs> i i was kate and i were talking before we started recording i have not yet read it because i saw how long it is and uh despite brett's warning i wasn't prepared for exactly how long it is my eyes don't like screens very long boy that was a poorly worded sentence my <laughs> eyes don't like reading different. text off of a screen for a prolonged period of time uh, so I, I may have to like actually print a copy of that because I do want to read it. I did like what I read of it, but my, my eyes just don't like reading off of the screen. Yeah. The, uh, the estimated time to read was something like 110 minutes. I can't. Yeah, I can't. My brain will just push my <laughs> eyes out of their sockets. 
I think that's everything we have for these uh, these chapters. So as always, we we thank you all for joining us in this discussion. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, anything like that, uh, all of our social media links are in the show notes, as well as the link to the Far Invisible article that Brett sent over. Um, next week, we will be talking chapters 61 through 65. And uh, we are rapidly approaching the end of this thing, guys. I didn't even think about it, but we're like four or five episodes removed from being done with this thing. Um, we'll, we'll, guys, we'll have, to, we'll have to follow through on saying that we figured out what book is next. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, man, how sad. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> Don't panic. We'll figure it out. All right. Well, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. See ya. Bye. I I do have to say, I, I will probably at some point use the phrase, my eyes don't like screens very long. <laughs> that like <laughs> that came out so unintentionally George W. Bush. The worst part is I knew completely what you were saying, but I didn't even clock how strange the phrasing was until you had actually... I knew what I was saying, and I, my brain just didn't like it. <laughs> my brain loves it. You should talk <laughs> more that like. I do make good words sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I praised you enough for mentioning it uh, last week, Luke. Um, the, the thing about the book being about the relationship to Richard Farina. Like the first time I read the book, I, I, I mean, I was sitting there crying because it was just so touching to, to kind of see somebody capture the, the, I, the idea of friendship so completely. And, you know, I don't think anyone's real relationships are like the one between Mason and Dixon, but it is the, the important parts are there. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about that. Like that's always kind of sitting in the back of my mind now when I re when I'm reading this, um, and it's I I do think there is something there and and um, especially in in the way that the the characters of Mason and Dixon kind of inform each other and 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 influence each other, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from the little bit I know about uh, Farina, uh, it does seem like he had that that kind of impact you know the the dixon to pinchon's mason and, and kind of helping him open up and um kind of be the the reach his full potential i guess so to speak it definitely feels too apropos to be complete coincidence yeah especially given the you know the outsized in uh, the outsized focus on mason when they're both, you know, on the cover of the same amount of space. Mm -hmm. And, you know. I, I petition to have the outro audio just talking, at least partially Cody yelling at his cat. That was, <laughs> that was really entertaining and that that was captured yeah. on, on recordings pretty great. He, he got back on the table a few minutes ago. I, had to, I texted my wife that time to go get him down. <laughs> So, Cody, when you were talking about um, the way they, you know, growing up, you loved Norse mythology and stuff. Mm -hmm. I Still just, do. I, you know, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, I just finished the ice shirt yesterday. Oh, yeah. Was it good? Uh, 
Yes. Okay. I like. I, I find now am going to read all of his novels. Yeah, I've um, only read I've only read Europe Central, but I I very much enjoyed Europe Central. Yeah, I was you know I'm still working through Gravity's Rainbow again, so it's one of those things where I just didn't feel like reading, you know, Pomo World War II discourse. Yeah, I got you. I got you. He books has a copy for twelve dollars. Um, says it's very good. It's at half price in Dallas, Luke. Okay, yeah, I um. Well, a lot of times they half price books will have listings online, and then not have it in have the store. The yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I might have to um, get this one. I'll check it out tomorrow. Yeah, that that whole the whole book is like heavy duty, like taking myth and reworking it into a modern novel. Hmm. All the contradictions that that implies included. And it's it's not metafictional, but he has himself as a character. Huh. And he uses footnotes in a way that is actually like not just humorous or not just uh you know, added information. It does actually feel mm-hmm. impactful when you read the the footnotes. Okay. And I yeah, I, I'm I I mean, incredibly impressed. It's it's been on my on my list for a long time. I just never am able to find a copy of it anywhere, so um, yeah. I may order this one tomorrow. Yeah, it's like completely non-linear in terms of story. The story mm-hmm. itself, like I said, contradicts it over and over and over again. It's cool. It's cool. Did you read um, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology book? No, I did read American Gods. Um, and uh, I wonder, actually, I American Gods came out in the late 90s, right? I think so, yeah. I wonder if he wasn't somewhat influenced just for a couple of scenes. I wouldn't be surprised. But his his North, Norse mythology book was really good. Um, it it kept a lot of, uh, or it had a lot of humor, which um, I think tends to get kind of lost in, in a lot of translations, but he really leaned into a lot of that. Not in a, um, it didn't feel like a Marvel type of you know mythological humor it, it felt more appropriate to um the source material and, and to the the time that those stories took place but i thought it was really good he did a good job with yeah. it I, I i it's on my e-reader it's, it's on my <clears throat> list i have also read that norse mythology thing by neil gaiman and i find it it, it uh, to be a really solid like introduction to Norse mythology. Um, mm-hmm. I rec- I recommended it to a friend of mine when he was interested in like Norse paganism and the the stories behind Norse paganism. The one mild gripe I have with it is I don't love his characterization of of Ragnarok when that eventually happens. I, I feel like he's missing some of the implications of what that. I can see that conflict more means philosophically and how that leads into the rest of Norse mythology but so so you mean like the re- the religious and kind of uh, like the the broad social trend kind of things yeah and and just what what that the idea of you know an unavoidable future no matter what you can do and and people know that that's what it's leading towards and oh yeah, yeah. the the broad based implications that it has for 
the the Norse people and the like their their religious beliefs and their their philosophy. I feel like that was really missing from his his description of of what was going on there. And um, I, I mean, he doesn't need to go into like a, a a philosophical diatribe towards the end of the book, but it would have been nice to have that worked in somehow, rather than it seeming just like a, a conflict that is coming eventually does. Yeah, I, I kind of got the sense that that might be the, the sort of thing that he wouldn't handle too well. Like yeah. I, said, I still plan to read the book. But... Yeah, it, it's absolutely worth your time. It's a quick read. It does not take... Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah, it does yeah. not take a lot of time. It sounds a lot like Mythos then by Fry. That's a fair comparison. Um, what what I would say then, actually, based based on what you, you how you just described the, the shortcomings with the handling of Ragnarok... What I would say is that uh, the ice shirt is miraculous in that it does cover, you know, the very broad strokes of Norse mythology, but it, only really for context. The only part that it does cover is that. Is that sort of social change and that sort of. Oh, OK. Yeah, that, that sort of imminent doom that overhangs everything. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting amalgam of things, that book. I will add it to my to my to read list. Yeah, I think I'm gonna. I need to stop buying books. <laughs> but I'm probably gonna order that one tomorrow. Yeah, I, I did start. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I'm I'm always interested in in stuff that tackles Norse mythology in in one way or the other. That is that is the other half of my of my family history is is scandinavian peoples oh and that's cool um yeah and uh like a, a chunk of my family is is still over there and parts of the american part of our family have gone and visited them um mm. and then a, f a few years after i after i quit being a christian i decided to start practicing paganism so it's it's a, a thing that i find very interesting Yeah, the, the thing that I found surprising about that book, I guess, just to keep on ranting, is that uh, it's less about, it's a lot less about, uh, you know, Viking or Norse myth, and a lot more about uh, native myth. Despite oh, cool. The, the majority hmm. of the story being about the Vikings. Yeah. There is, there is a lot more similarity between the two of them than I think most people would, would recognize. I, I yeah, think... there was clearly some like prehistoric belief. Somehow. Yeah, I I, I agree completely because I shortly after I started practicing Norse paganism, I was dating a um a Native American individual, and a, a a fun part of that relationship was was comparing the the similarities in the belief systems and the relationship between the belief systems and the land and medicine and and things like that. What were you going to say earlier, Cody? Oh, um, this was, I, I meant to ask you guys this last week when we were talking uh, about, I think it was last week we were talking about not just, not our, not our bizarre Willy Wonka uh, fortune moneymaker machine that we're going to do. Um, mm -hmm. I think we, we got onto the topic of 
I think it was in, in, within the same discussion we were talking about the A twenty four films. I was going to ask if you guys have if you guys had seen um, the the Green Knight and what y'all thought. I have. I have Since we were on Knight. in that vein of like the Norse mythology, I, Arthurian stuff has always been something I've really been interested in as well. And the, the Green Knight has always been like one of my favorite um, Arthurian related stories. And um, when I found out they were making a movie about it, I was pretty excited about it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, it wasn't the greatest thing ever, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, speaking as somebody who has not read any Arthurian, um, so I, I don't have the, the original context to compare it to. I really enjoyed that film. I thought that it was, it was gorgeously shot. Um, it was, like the cinematography was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Cinematography was beautiful. I thought Dev Patel's performance was, was amazing. Um, I, I thought that, the the construction of the movie was was interesting the different kind of vignettes that represent the the acts of the film i really liked and um that whole flash forward sequence at the end when he sees what'll happen if he runs away from me mm-hmm. i find all, i found also very like i i i really liked it i love that film actually yeah the story's like i said it's been one of my favorites and it's it's relatively short um I I ended up stumbling on it. I shouldn't say stumbling on it. I got into it when I was in like I think middle school, because uh, Tolkien did a, a translation of it that I found a copy of, and just it became one of my favorite just stories in general. Um, and so that, I think that's why in in reading the um the Lamb and Worm story, like that just started the gears in my head of all the old. Norse mythology and, and Arthurian stuff that I was really into as a kid and just has never left my brain. I, I always have a, a real soft spot for those kind of stories. So, Yeah, they're cool. I never, I never read like Mallory or anything earlier, the, the, the Green Knight, but mm-hmm. I, I have read a couple of adaptations, more modern ones, and I was really looking forward to seeing that when it came out. But it's one of those movies that I would really like to see with somebody so that we can dissect it for hours mm. afterwards. And uh, that just could be a a Patreon thing. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> possible. But yeah, I didn't, just nobody was nobody around me at the time was uh, interested or had already seen it. So it just didn't work out for me. Hmm. I just I've just been putting it off since then. Well, that's a good one. So I, I started reading God's Gods because I finished reading the Iliad and Fire and Blood. Not God's Oh, yeah, Gods. I was going to ask you Gards, how Gards. you thought of it. So, so far, it's really funny. I'm about halfway through it. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's mm-hmm. one of, it, it definitely has the same overall sense of humor as like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has always been a favorite I'm of mine. rereading that series right now. I needed yeah. something lighter. And so I was like, I can always go to Hitchhiker's Guide. And yeah, I still love that, that series. The um yeah, it's speaking of books that like make you actually like laugh out loud. Yeah, this is that's one, of, one them. of them. Um, however, there's a thing that I wanted to ask you, Cody, because I know you had read it, um, mm-hmm. and I think Will also has read some of these books too. But in the the very first page, there's a there's a quote that I'll just read out. Um, because I I don't know if I'm wrong in my assumption trying to be and I'm, I'm curious if you if you have thoughts on it um or it says in another space entirely it was early morning in oldest and greatest and grubbiest of cities a thin drizzle dripped from the gray sky and punctuated the river mist that coiled among the streets 
Rats of various species went about their nocturnal occasions. Under night's damp cloak assassins assassinated. Thieves thieved, hussies hustled, and so on. And drunken Captain Vimes of the Night Watch staggered slowly down the street, folded gently into the gutter outside the watch house, and lay there while, above him, strange letters made of light sizzled in the damp and changed color. The city wasa wasa was was name thing woman that's what it was woman roaring ancient centuries old strung you along let you fall in thingy love with her then kicked you in a in a thingy thingy in your mouth tongue tonsils teeth that's what it she did she was a thing you know lady dog puppy hen bitch and then you hated her, and just when you thought you'd got her it out of your your whatever, then she opened her great booming rotten heart to you, caught you off bal bal b- thing ants. Yeah, that's it. Never knew where you stood. Lay. Only thing you were sure of, you wouldn't let her go, cause because she was yours, all you had even in her gutters. So, the thing that I felt after reading that is, it seems like the opening of a noir film. Where mm-hmm. the detective is trying to do the narration thing, so, but so, in this case, he's so drunk he can't yeah. remember what the narration he's supposed to say is. So check yeah. out the sidebar on the Wikipedia page. Okay, because I wasn't sure if that was intentional it's, or if oh, I it's, was. It's yeah. There's yeah. Do they mention? Oh, I'm pulling it up right now. Hold on. Oh yeah, subject yeah, hot yeah, novels yeah, film yeah. noir. Okay. Yeah, Vimes yeah, is is like the the prototypical like noir like the 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 sam spade kind of but like sure way way more unhinged and and constantly drunk and also much more moral yeah 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 yeah, that's fair he's not a perfect man but he is a leaps and bounds ahead of those classic characters yeah yeah Yeah. the the only reason i couldn't think of whether that was intentional that he hasn't really done that since He's he's mostly been confused by what Carrot is doing um, since Carrot first arrived with the watch. So I don't know if it, if it comes up later on in the again, but it it was something that made me like laugh on for a while. So often, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and I just read the fifth element, uh, the fifth elephant. Sorry, so I should remember better. I think he opens most of the the watch books with a, a vignette in that style. Okay. And sometimes the they first come up later, but yeah. Three for sure. I've only read up to Feet of Clay, which was, I think was the third one. And I know they, they have that same similar kind of opening. Feet of Clay is super noiry. Yeah. Like it has a ton of those scenes. Men at Arms is really good. Um and then and yeah, Guard Guard. Those those are the only three I read of the watch novels. Um but yeah, I mean if you like Guards Guards, keep going with with that kind of string of those books. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like at some point, uh, I, I want to talk to you about small gods. Cause that's, that's probably yeah. my favorite of his. That's the one that I'm reading next. So I, okay. I think I had told this already, but I was just, I went over to, um, a friend of mine's house whose wife is really into these, these books. And she, um, I was there to like help her edit some stuff that she had written. And I pointed out, like, oh, you know, I've never actually read any of those. And then she immediately handed me cards, cards and then she was like, oh, you should also read Small Gods because you used Small to be a like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pratchett is, um, 
I was thinking about that when uh, I think it was Luke was mentioning, because um, uh, I'm the same way. Like, in all honesty, like, there's not a lot of books that I I will audibly laugh while I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Um, Mason and Dixon is one. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, um, it, with the exception of Mostly Harmless, because that one kind of got pretty dark and wasn't really as it was good, but it wasn't as funny as the other ones. Sure. Um, a bunch of Pratchett, and then. Um, John Swartzwelder, who was a writer for The Simpsons um, and did some of the more bizarre episodes, uh, he has a series of um, kind of similar to Guards Guards. Like a, they're kind of a play on the the hard boiled noir detective stories, um, but they're very Pinchonian in their in their absurdity and their self awareness. But they're hard to come by. Gotcha. But those books yeah. made me laugh my ass off. Yeah, similar to you, like Mason and Dixon definitely does. Um, so far, what I've read of Pratchett does. Uh, the Hitchhiker's books definitely do. Um, the other one that I can think of is uh, Richard Iowade wrote a memoir. I love Richard Iowade. So have you uh, read any of his books? I have not. You should. Uh, he wrote a memoir that is, in and of itself, a a metafictional parody of the concept of a famous person thinking they would need to publish a memoir about their career. Is, is it Iowate on Iowate? It is in which okay. in which he he <laughs> he creates a second Richard Iowate. Oh that my is, god that is interviewing Richard Iowate, the director. Um, and it is the funniest fucking thing that I have read probably in my life. Where, I'm looking at the cover of this, and I already yeah. love that it's a play on, um, what's it called, that documentary about the guy that made Boondock Saints. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, we're just, the, the amount of jokes that he stuffs into it, in even just a singular chapter um is so funny and that that is an audiobook that i've also listened to and he has asides that he puts in there just for the audiobook where he routinely chastises you for listening to an audiobook because you can't <laughs> read the footnotes properly um and every time footnotes come up again he just brings it up again really you should be reading this as a physical copy because then i wouldn't have to remind you that this you know, wouldn't break up the text so weirdly, and I wouldn't have to to keep telling you that you should have a physical copy of this book. It's it's hilarious, absolutely hilarious. I have to see if the library has this. Yeah, we, my wife and I have, have been big fans of him for a long time. We, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched any of the uh, Big Fat Quiz. Yeah, I, uh, I watch that every year. <laughs> He's God, they're so good. I want him to be on Taskmaster because I just think that would be. Like I think he'd be so good on that, but I don't think he would. Library doesn't have it. I don't think he would either. I would love to see it, but I don't think he would do it. Right. The IT yeah. crowd was good too, though. I mm-hmm. feel weird now because uh, when I think about every book I read, I laugh at most of them. Like The Stranger by Camus, pretty fucking funny. I do. That, I that do book? laugh at a lot of them. I just don't laugh audibly. The Stranger is pretty funny. I I don't even really laugh out loud at sitcoms if I'm alone. Sure, like you know, I'm, there's I'm stuff kind of that the I find way. there's I'm stuff I find end. very funny that I just don't laugh out loud right. about. 
yeah, I just laugh. That's I laugh a lot. Yeah, there's. I, I'm 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 with you on that, Luke. Like, if I'm by myself, there's a few exceptions. Like every time, no matter how many times I've rewatched the Venture Brothers, I I am in tears most of the time at a lot of that stuff. Um, and some of the old Simpsons episodes too, and and like Monty Python. But most of the time, I I appreciate the humor. I just for some reason it's not an audible reaction I have. Like, yeah, in, in high school math class, I was reading Catch-22, and it was that part where it's like, what is Apple? Why is Hitler? Mm-hmm. And, like, <laughs> I laughed out loud, and, like, you know, like the teacher, like, stops class, and it's like, why are you laughing, Luke? And, I, like, you know, like, it's math class, there's no reason to. And I had to, like, I can't remember what, how I played it off, but I, I didn't reveal that I was reading a book, and I somehow was just like, you know, like, oh, it was just something I was thinking about. Um, But, yeah, I mean... That that part of Catch Twenty Two especially always gets me. It that that's pretty close to one of the the peaks of humor in that book. Did you watch the George Clooney produced adaptation of Catch Twenty Two for Hulu, Luke? I've been vaguely meaning to that in the movie. It's the the movie, the old movie, but I haven't ever watched it. No. the The Hulu series is actually pretty solid. I forgot okay. they did that. Yeah, I yeah. completely forgot about it too because I'd. I've been vaguely meaning to to watch it. I just never got around to it. Yeah, I almost put it on a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'll have to move it up to, on my list. But I mean, yeah. seriously, like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche are two of my favorite philosophers, not necessarily mm-hmm. because they're right, but because of how funny they are. That's Nietzsche fair. especially is, is pretty damn funny. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think Kierkegaard is right about everything, and we all must submit to Christ. <laughs> However... <laughs> It is the humor that keeps me coming back. Cody, uh, where are you at in the Illuminatus thing? I gave up on it, to be honest. Um, It got to a point where the, I got about halfway through the second book, the, I can't remember what what, what it was called, but. The um, Golden Apple, I think. Golden Apple, yeah, yeah, yeah. It it just got to a point where I, I couldn't get past the way that, the female characters were written, but more than that, it was like every, every sex scene and they got more and more common in the second book, just got more and more uncomfortable to read. Yeah. Um, almost like it was just this, like, um, like a, I don't know, almost like a weird dick measuring contest for writing cringy sex scenes and like, <laughs> just trying to like outdo the previous one. It, and it just got to where I was like, I can't, this is just I can't like the story itself, like wasn't bad. There was a lot of interesting ideas in there, but I feel like it would just kind of take like two steps forward and then four back when it would just feel like, well, we need, you know, you know, there has to be a gratuitous sex scene in here now. Yeah. I mean, the first half of the second book is super unfocused. Um, I did, I did like the second half better than the first half. Um, there's a really funny Ayn Rand parody um in the second half where like one of the characters like picks up a book in a in an airport and then the book is summarized and it's just like i it took me like i i was doing my like reading journal afterwards and that's when i read my parody because it's not apparent right off the bat um i get it though i definitely get it i do think the second half of the book um if i remember correctly uh is is lighter on on the kind of stuff that you're that you're complaining about although i mean there is you know, like like the, the harry coin or whatever the guy that is part of the jfk assassination uh-huh. 
This is kind of uncomfortable, but he uh, he 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 hangs out with George, you know, the guy that he he raped in jail. Like they're just like hanging yeah. out, smoking weed later in the book. And like, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't have much experience with that kind of stuff, especially like hanging out, smoking weed with somebody like that. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just really odd that like a week before that they were in jail and that's a big a whole... shift in a short amount of time. Yeah, like I was reeks of homophobia. Yeah, yeah, like it was it was really odd and like made me kind of vaguely uncomfortable because it's not like it's not like George is like a little bit uncomfortable. He does think about what had happened, but like it's not like a major aspect of that scene. It's just like them hanging out, smoking weed with one of the girls. And it's just like it's really it's a, it was a really odd narrative, like authorial choice because it's not like, you know, like there's no there's no like consequences and there's no like like discussion of trauma or anything. Yeah. And it, like, well, what I told Cody, too, and he asked me about it because I'd read it years ago. I was like, I, I hate to I hate to pigeonhole someone just by their career, but it is a book written by two editors of Playboy. Like, yeah, not, that makes sense. Expecting them to have any kind of advanced yeah. ideas about sex or women at all. Yeah, Robert Anton Wilson talked a lot about freeing your mind, but he did not seem to do a very good job of it. Well, I am reading. Um, I'm like a third of the way through Underworld by Don DeLillo. I'm really liking that one. Um, it's, I've, I put it down for a little while just cause I was like, work was burying me with all kinds of stuff and I couldn't focus on reading. And then, uh, I started playing video games again. And so that kind of ate up some of my time, but, um, um, yeah, it's really good so far. And, um, I don't know that I'll finish it anytime soon. I want, I'm kind of trying to take my time with it as, as much as I can, but that's why I also started picking up uh, Hitchhiker's Guide was just to have something a little lighter um, to kind of break the... I've been reading a lot of, like, downer shit lately, so I need something more like that. You updated. have. So... Do you, do you think you're going to go back to The Expanse at all? Oh, for sure I am. I saw it at the library the other day, and I, I almost grabbed it, and I was like, I got so much... I, I, I need to just wait a minute but like it's it's calling me i really want to go back to it because i'm on abaddon's gate i think that's book three right yeah that, that'd be three. my next one once that'd you're finished one. with uh book three i'll read book four with you again because that's where i'm at in my read oh sweet okay well then i'll i'll pick it up uh earlier I'd, i've been wanting a reason to read it so i just finished the the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy so i was going to take a break from the series for a little bit but um yeah. I might jump into that one. My wife, apparently, uh, she is reading This Is How You Lose a Time War, which has been on my list as well. Oh, that's an amazing, amazing book. I really love that book. It is a I've, little, like, it's like purple prose to the max, you know, like super mm-hmm. purple, but I really enjoy that book. And it's it's not too long, and it's really evocative and fun to read. Sorry, I've, I've read some of them reading? all. Sorry? What book are we reading again in this whole podcast thing? Purple prose, oh. and all. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah. This is like romantic purple prose, though. If you get oh. what I'm saying, yeah. yeah. So like I, I've read some of them all. Elmotar's short stories, um, and liked them. So no, that I would, that heard would... about that. I'll have to read it though. It's an interesting book from a, a standpoint of its like composition and and layout. It'll be a good palate cleanser from the uh the illuminatus trilogy as far as how it handles relationships 
<laughs> yeah, I, I describe that book as delicate, definitely. So yeah. All right, let me see if my library has Abaddon's Gate, or rather, which branch has Abaddon's Gate, so I can go get it. I keep thinking about um, funny books, and so Cody, um, do you consider yourself a, a Neil Gaiman fan? I can't remember. Yeah, I, I like what I've read of it. I've read almost all of his stuff, not all of it. Um, but yeah, I like I like his work. How old is your younger? My daughter. Yeah, she is eight. Um, so I would recommend the graveyard book. Yes. My son read, um, well, no, he read the graphic novel version. I've read the graphic novel and the novel version of it. Um, and we're going to do that on his podcast actually, um, pretty soon. Oh, cool. Yeah. No, it's that. I mean, that's one of, I think probably one of his funniest books. It was, yeah, it was a really good one. Um, we did do Coraline. Uh, and he he really liked that one because he he's really into the, like the like horror stuff. And so I was like, well, this is Coraline's a good kind of like gateway for your age. Definitely, yeah. Okay, I found Abaddon's Gate, and it's not too far from where I am, so that's going on hold. They just finished auctioning oh. off all the props left over from the show. I was really oh, I again I haven't read any of the books or seen any of the show. I I was bummed to hear that they canceled it though. Yeah. From all the praise I've heard. It's it's so good. I I I did manage to win an auction for one of the jumpsuits that a character wore. So that's pretty that's sick. Cool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it is it is absolutely worth the time that it takes to read and or watch. And they have a The two that I've right read now. have been really good. Yeah. They, they're doing I think they made a video right game now. too, right? Telltale Video Games did one, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I have to finish Death Stranding before I can do anything else. <laughs> I've also, I, I just picked up yesterday, um, uh, what's it called? Something the Posthorn by Vigdis Yort. Uh, where is it? Where is it? I seriously thought I would have found it on my e-reader by now. <laughs> Long live the posthorn by Vigdis Hjort. It is, it, off the bat, it's reminding me of The Stranger, which is why I brought that up. Um, but it it's, seems to be interesting. It seems to be, so far, a few pages in, I'm not going to say anything beyond that. It's a lot, it seems like it's a, a woman who is struggling with her memory. But she might not actually be struggling with her memory. She might just think she is. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And there's a whole post-horn conspiracy, much like Lot 49. I'm interested. Yeah, I'll I'll update y'all on it because I've heard very little about it except for that. Sounds interesting. Speaking it, of the stranger, it, uh, go ahead, Kate. I was just gonna ask: Is it originally in in English or is it a translation? 
it's definitely a translation. Um, give me a second. Yeah, okay. Uh, she is Norwegian. Oh, okay. So, yeah. They yeah, translate the names of things. Sorry. Very good. Uh, speaking of The Stranger being funny, The Stranger is a really depressing book, but um, two movies that I've I've watched that like on like my third, uh, I think my third watch, like the third time I watched that will be blood. I couldn't stop laughing during parts of it. Which parts? Um, like to... the part where he, the part where he slaps the part where Daniel Day Lewis is slapping Paul Dano across the field of mud. Okay, yeah. yeah. That part I, I couldn't that. stop laughing because it's so absurd. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third time I saw The Northman in theaters, like I was I was on a few different things. Nothing like a lot or like too ridiculous, but and like the third time I saw The Northman, I couldn't stop giggling like the worst times <laughs> in theaters. It's weird how that happens. Because yeah, the first time I read the the Stranger, I mainly focused on like you know it's absurd, but just how depressing it was, and like his his view of like Anadonia and that kind of stuff. But then it does get more and more funny the more you read it. Yeah, I uh... shoot lost lost my train of thought. Sorry. Oh, Kate, I just found out my the. Library has the um, the man who fell to Earth on hold for me. The oh, the book, sick. not the movie. For some reason, the movie's not available yet, but they have the book for me. So cool. now I have that to read as well. Oh, I was just gonna say, I love. There's a, I guess you could call it a conspiracy theory, that um, Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day Lewis agreed that it was a comedy. That there will be blood was a comedy, and they didn't tell anybody. And, uh, like, you know, I have no clue what to do with that conspiracy That's... theory, but I kind of buy into it. <laughs> I drink your milkshake. That part, I, I remember I, when I saw that when it came out, and I just was like, part of me inside was laughing, but I, I had to, like, kind of contain myself because no one else in the theater was, and I was like, I gotta just, like... But it, that part is, it is hilarious. And I've always thought that particular part was pretty hilarious. It quickly becomes uh, quite the opposite when he beats the ever-living shit out of him with a bowling pin. Um, I don't know. I think that's still kind of funny. It is. That's also based in, in history, too, though. Uh-huh. Um, that was an actual like legal defense that someone used to obtain oil from a nearby field. I don't know if it was a milkshake specifically, but it was some kind of... It might have actually been. Yeah, I think it was my second or third time watching There Will Be Blood. I laughed every time he said, I'm a family man. <laughs> when I, uh, I worked at, at Burger King out of high school, um, and a friend of mine and I, after that movie came out, we spent uh, the better part of a week speaking like Daniel Plainview all the time <laughs> we were at work, and it That's drove awful. everybody insane. I, I basically did that like once for like a whole day when one of my coworkers brought up the fact that the the photo of Rudy Giuliani looks like there's oil down his head instead of his hair dye, <laughs> and then I just proceeded to to do quotes from their own blood for oh, most God. of that day. 
That's funny. Seepage! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Ah. Because I think I often think of Spotify podcast listeners as the least dedicated of podcast listeners. <laughs> <laughs> They're not hardcore I'm, podcast listeners. In case we put this in the end, I'm talking yeah. to you. Right. I would I would say get on Stitcher, but they shut that down, so don't worry <laughs> about that. And I found out. I think I found out what happened with them. Uh, so apparently, a lot of people when they made the announcement that they were shutting down um, the, the whole platform, a bunch of people on, on Reddit were saying like, yeah, I noticed not too long ago that they weren't like rebilling me for my subscription. So I think what happened was there was some kind of a situation with their payment processing or something, and they just weren't renewing people's subscriptions and no one noticed because oh, some no. of these people were saying like they weren't paying for the subscription for like years. Oh no! And, what? Yeah. So, I, I it seems like the general consensus is that they just like really fucked up and made you know, and then finally when they realized that like, well, we can't climb back from this without probably like drastically increasing the subscription price. How so they had to just that? tear it all down. I have no idea. That's crazy. I mean, they they were a huge player in podcasts about eight mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had a lot of exclusive shows. That's why, like, I moved over to them um, a couple years ago, and I loved it. And I was really bummed when they said they were getting rid of it, but it's whatever. I'm on Apple Podcasts now, so I am. I am one of the aforementioned uh, Spotify podcast. <laughs> um, you, you're a casual podcast listener. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the uh, I so I I started listening to podcasts like when. I don't know, probably like 2008 or something, when you had to download singular episodes from iTunes, yeah, like one at a time to your, to your iPod. Um, yep. So I was using that for the longest time. And then I used Google Podcasts for a long time. But Google Podcasts had this recurring issue where like once a quarter and then once every six months, it would just erase your listening history. So all the episodes that you had actually listened to just suddenly weren't marked has wow. listened to anymore which was so annoying um so then i switched to spotify because they also have an exclusive podcast called bandsplain that i listen to a lot bandsplain is on apple podcast by the way is it really so is 60 songs that explain the 90s yeah well wow, that's why i was able to finally dump spotify entirely because those were the two shows on there that i was really into i love yasi salak or those yeah. shows are great Yossi yeah, Salak's great. I thought the reason why it had to be on Spotify is because they were doing that music and talk feature where they were in no, the songs in there. No, it's because the... I know at least for 60 songs, um, that was done through The Ringer, which uh, I think is owned by Spotify now, or they have whatever company owns one owns both. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, they're both on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't listened to 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, it's a great show. You should listen to that one too. Yossi Salak's on there a few times. Because her and uh, Rob Harville are like, real close. Yeah, I love Yossi Salak. She's great. What what age range do you define as potentially a youth, Will? Well, I think that like old old people are the only ones who who 
really use the term in that sense. <laughs> so pro I, I would say, you know, you know, someone who isn't a, about 30. Gotcha. Um, Luke stepped away for a minute. Oh, okay. No worries. I was, I was endeavoring to figure out what, uh, what Will defines as a youth. I, I don't think I count as one, just to be clear, but, you know, <laughs> I think that out of the four of us, I'm clearly the, the most qualified to speak on youth culture. Yeah. Steve I can't, because I'll have the Steve Buscemi with the, the skateboard, and <laughs> that's going to be my, my whole vibe. I That has been my perpetual vibe. I have a real trend of, like, get, getting into things a couple of years before they become cool. Yeah. Which is, you know, not cool yeah so so what you're saying is once you're steve buscemi's age whenever that episode of 30 rock aired you you too will be asked to join the <laughs> undercover police force yeah <laughs> oh i will be i'll be walking around in the the bright uh you know fluorescent moon boots we'll all be wearing i'll be you know i'll have those wraparound shades that you know you can't tell where my eyes are because it <laughs> encircles my entire head yep Nice. That's how cool I'll be in like 2080. So what I'm hearing is you're going to dress like Eradicator from the Superman comic. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, well, I don't know if that's a reference you get. but <laughs> It isn't, but just based on the name, I'm sure I understand it. And I'm pretty sure that that's just the future. It's uh, possible. As far as I'm concerned, that is the future of fashion. It's uh, Jordi LaForge meets Robocop. Mm. And also pump up the jam. Oh yeah, that's 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 always that's... representative of a music genre of the future. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think the I think if the future does not look like a Eurodance rave, um, we'll have gone astray. In a way that nobody could have predicted. That's fair. It really will be disappointing. Hold on. Hey, no, stop. Stop. I can't pay attention to you all the time. Sorry, my cat has decided now's a good time to be an ass. I can't pay attention to you all the time. <laughs> I swear, this is like the moment I'm doing something where he doesn't have my focus and attention. It's just like, I should destroy things now. <laughs>